Welcome to the Long Take Review, the film podcast with one eye always on the Oscars. I'm your host, Jen Subchakjai Bankard, and I'm here with a couple of Philistines. First, I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina, but here's P.T. McNiff. How's it going, P.T.? <laughs> he took pity on me and he gave me a job as an adjunct professor, low pay and no respect. <laughs> Truer words were never spoken. I'm doing well, Jen. How are you? I'm doing doing great. Shout out to all our adjunct friends. Uh, And most most of the kids dislike him, pretty much hate him. Teachers, too. But you know that, right, Greg Cass? How's it going, Greg? Son of a bitch, that's another detention! (laughs) I'm good, Jen. Thanks for having me on. I love how you're the one always worried about us getting an explicit rating, and then <laughs> and then you do that. That's it's great. It's great. But but you know that's just what this movie's bringing out in all of us. Uh, so we are here today to review the Holdovers, a holiday dramedy about an elite boarding school in 1970s Massachusetts. It's directed by Alexander Payne, who's made many critically acclaimed films, including Sideways and The Descendants, both of which won Oscars. Honestly, there are a bunch of other films I could list, but it, I didn't want the list to be too long. Uh, the Holdover Overs is out in select theaters now and will be in theaters everywhere this weekend. The film stars Paul Giamatti, who is reuniting with Payne for the first time since Sideways, uh, which all, uh, let me tell you, like every podcast, every critic I've heard talk about this movie, that's like the main thing that they open with is like, well, they're back together now that's in Sideways. Uh, and <laughs> is, it, is it better? Is it as good? Anyway, uh, Paul Giamatti plays a curmudgeonly history professor or teacher, because uh, he's a teacher, it's a high school, who has to babysit a group of students who must remain at school over the holidays. So that is the premise. I, I realized the other day that like we have not been great about like just offering the basic plot premise of movies mm. before we start talking about them. If you are listening to us for the first time, we will have a spoiler-free section designed for those who have not yet seen the film. And then with a very clear spoiler warning, we will shift into spoiler mode for the rest of the show. Uh, but before we do that, PT, could you tell us what folks should do if they like what they hear in this episode and they want more? I mean, yeah, if they cannot get enough, uh, then please uh, follow the Long Take Review wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, the feed is hosted on Jen's Substack, thelongtake.substack.com. Uh, but you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, all various podcatchers uh, that you may want to use. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram and threads at The Long Take Review, where we'll uh, eventually send out updates about uh, when when new shows are released. The Anatomy of a Fall post took uh, a minute to get out there because uh, I saw it went up late one night and I was like, I'll do that. I'll do that the next day. And then it was like, Three days later, I was like, I never did that. Uh, So we will eventually tell you. Make sure you should follow us in all places. Who knows where the best information will come from? I mean, it is a busy time in the semester for all of us. This is the pre-Thanksgiving crunch. Uh, I I assume Greg is also experiencing this. Um, So, so yeah, we're just lucky to be putting out episodes right now, (laughs) to be honest. Um, All right. So our last order of business before we get to our review of The Holdovers is a quick movie news check-in. So the strike has had some developments, the actor strike. I'm, I'm hopeful. But basically, there's a final offer, quote unquote, final offer on the table from the studios. And I think I haven't I didn't check today if there were any updates, but I didn't see any. SAG-AFTRA is still reviewing 
said final offer, right? There was a brief update this evening to say that they are just still looking it over. It's oh, okay. been two days, so they're still looking it over. The The Instagram post I saw from the union said there is still some distance between where their position and the offer, particularly on AI they singled out. So um, they didn't specify what that means, if that would be just something they would accept or if they're, they're going to go back and try to push. But it sounds like all parties are very committed at this point to getting it done. So um, I'm I'm hopeful, but not completely sold that it's about to happen. Right. Yeah, as of this recording, which is the night uh, of Monday, November 6th, I'm looking at the, the latest L.A. Times story is that there was an official response from sag after but it's not public what that was um mm. and i think that's in line with what greg is saying is it's not they're not they're not there yet i do remember seeing when the you know the the trades were saying and the produ- you know, producers are coming back with their their last final best offer uh that the sag after a pushback was like that's what they say of course like yeah that's that's some of the the trades doing the spin for for the producers so you know but you know it's good that they're back trading offers after that little downtime where there seemed to be a week or two where nothing was happening yeah and i and i think they're really running up against the pressure of finishing and pt has mentioned this before finishing before the holidays right because everything kind of shuts down for the holidays and i can't remember which podcast i was listening to but somebody was sort of saying look like if this goes into the holidays and we're still here after like in the new year and that hasn't been resolved yet, then that's basically that's torpedoing the slate for next year, right? That mm-hmm. then it becomes a production problem where people don't have time to actually make stuff for next year. So yeah, we're up against a deadline kind of. <laughs> so yeah, fingers crossed. Hopefully, hopefully they can get it done. And this is bad movie news uh, reporting, but uh, something got pushed, right? Like was there was some award, like the writers guild, awards got pushed or something to after the Oscars. Like one of the precursors is now going to be a WGA. WGA. Yeah. Yeah, WGA awards. So, which is a huge, huge deal because that's a, at least for me, like a, a very significant bellwether in terms of not just for the screenplay categories, but for best picture and all the made like big cat in terms of like, who's going to be a front runner going into Oscar Sunday. So, you know, very selfishly, I was like bereft on that level, but also <laughs> that's it could potentially be a bad sign. Like if if WGA is like not confident that we're going to be back in business in time for them to have the awards before the Oscars, maybe maybe like do they know something we don't? Meaning like the Oscars are going to move. That's sort of what I thought. I mean, it is also them acknowledging that their membership has been out of work for a large part of the year. So that could just be recognition of we were we took a break, so we're going to acknowledge that. Um, it is just this one year they delayed it, right? They didn't. This isn't like an all time change. Oh, yeah, so. they didn't. I mean, they, don't, they didn't specify one way or the other, I think. But yeah, no, I think okay. the assumption is it's like for this year, because exactly what you're saying So the, the eligibility window is a little bit bigger. So they have more nominees, I think. Um, or at least that's what the speculation is that that's why, but hopefully it's not because <laughs> they know the Oscars <laughs> are moving anyway. Um, cause that, that, that movie news day is going to be, it's gonna be big. <laughs> <laughs> Emergency pod. Um, 
I know. We're, yeah, we'd have to like just hop on and record something on our, my phone or something like that. Just, just open um, weeping uh, yes. if it happens. Yeah, just a half hour of us oh. crying. But, uh, you know, it is it is a very crowded award season because the Emmys are now in January in addition to everything else. So it's I think it's going to be OK. We'll have enough to, to kind of buzz about entertainment. But I do think having no inside knowledge, it does feel like the Oscars are going to have to strongly consider their eligibility window, especially if some of these projects hold off because the actors can't be out. Um, I, I don't know. It feels like poor things. One of the front runners is kind of on the chopping block. It seems like the studios might not want to put that out. If you can't get Emma stone out there promoting it. Um, people who are weirdos like us and our listeners probably are like chomping at the bit to go see this. And, and, you know, they've been talking about from studios for so long. I really want to see it, but the general public, if you can't get Emma stone out there promoting it, are they going to know what this is? I don't think the, the names mean as much, uh, the, the director and so on. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and I'm going to be honest, I think the holdovers, our topic for tonight suffers a little from this too. I, I mean, there are three really good performances in this and I would love to hear them out promoting it. Um, and they are quiet and silent and I'll share some more anecdotes about that later, but, um, it's interesting. Yeah, I think uh, I was at a kid's birthday party over the weekend and just casually brought this up and the the holdovers and no one had heard about it. They're like, what is Mm. this? Like what? And so I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And you were punching children who were dressed as uh, characters from struck work, right? You're just scab punch. scab. Yeah. 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 The the Ryan Reynolds way. (laughs) Yeah. Just throwing throwing paint on them. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh, they were no, armed with they were armed with minecraft swords i wasn't about to do that oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, my, my thinking to add to what everyone's saying just real briefly my thinking about why it would make sense if they move the oscars would be if it got to a point where the production uh you know factory line was slowed enough that they were the the industry in general was like okay you know there's going to be a gap of you know, three or four months maybe where there's not as much stuff. If we move the Oscars into those, that like hole, then these award movies can, you know, get, be re-released, get played again. Obviously there's big ones, Oppenheimer, Barbie, et cetera, that like we're back. Like, you know, there's already a re-release of Oppenheimer at some of the IMAX screens out there. Um, But you know, something like a holdovers could come out again if it's got nominations and uh, maybe find a little more footing with actors out promoting, assuming the strike's over. But that's dependent on they're not going to make that move until they know the strike's ended and what the damage is. So, um, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to see. Realistically, though, when is would that gap occur? Like, wouldn't it be around when the Oscars are anyway? Well, I, my thinking is they could make it whenever they want it to be. Like the, the gap would oh, probably be in, you know, a year or so or a year and a half. But then they can delay the movies that are this spring to go to the summer, summer movies a little bit later or even to the next summer. And then they can just shift things back that, that are already like in production and post-production. Well, not production, but in post-production in order to um, create a hole where they want to. I mean. Um... My personal position at the moment is savor award season because I think summer movie season is already pretty much tanked. Um, I don't think they've admitted them all, but the Mission Impossible move we talked about a couple episodes ago was a big blow. 
Um, by all accounts, Deadpool is not going to make that early May. They'll probably move Dune to that early May spot, if we're Jesus being honest. Christ, um, Greg, what are you doing? <laughs> um, Don't speak I mean, such things into existence. <laughs> but but that would be better for the movie. That would be bad for True. us because we'd have to wait longer. But that would be better. That would be better than March, which I think is when mm. it currently is supposed to come By out. By the way, th- this is the episode. We should have been recording Dune 2 right now. It sure would have come out. This oh, you're Friday. right. This would have been it. Oh, yeah. Oh, I but the holdovers is good too. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it is. I guess, but also, um, very so, few, yeah. very few sandworms. I can say before <laughs> before we get into spoilers, Not zero, but very few. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anything else new in either of your movie worlds before we move on? Uh, I had a really cool experience seeing the holdovers, and I'm going to just pepper that in all the way through our discussion of it. But I will oh, yeah, save it can... for now. Nice. So. Okay. That's yeah, awesome. I had a really bad experience seeing the holdovers. I'm going to pepper <gasps> that in too. Oh, it wasn't really bad. It was pretty bad. Yeah, uh, it's going to be my short take. So it's a good. It's a good transition. Right. So that means we are ready for the short take. So this is our general reaction to the film, and I, I put in our our outline here that we we should probably lay out our New England cards on the table. Because I think we've mentioned it in passing in previous episodes, but like I think context about where we are coming from in terms of the setting of this movie, uh, because that at least for me had a big effect on sort of how I felt about watching it uh, in, or certain parts of it. So for listeners who don't know, Greg currently lives in the Boston area. PT and I are in the general L.A., Southern California area, uh, but we all at one point or another lived in massachusetts i mean i'll i'll I'll, i will first note i don't is i don't know is this school necessarily in massachusetts i know it's north of boston but it might technically be in new hampshire new hampshire because it feels like it's a big trip to go to boston Mm -hmm. um for them and it's not like we're going to the commuter rail and we're going into boston it's like a long car ride they don't specify though so i think i just assumed it was in massachusetts which is a fair assumption. And I, so I will just add, uh, while not a boarding school, I did go to an all boys uh, prep high school. Uh, so uh, that uh, some of the dynamics of the teachers <laughs> and the students uh, were, were very real to me, even if uh, I went 25 years later than, mm. uh, than this movie was set. Um, and, you know, they still talk about you at that school because you saved Latin, right? Uh, which I, is just, yeah. uh, it was phenomenal that what, you did what, that. Uh, what did you ever do? <laughs> there it is. Uh, <laughs> um, yes, I I will say I read the school a lot as Exeter, which is uh, the kind of southeast corner of New Hampshire. Um, I will say I'm a proud son of New Hampshire, transplanted to Massachusetts. So I have a lot of New Hampshire in me, or sorry, New England in me. Um, I also, one of my favorite writers of all time is John Irving. And if you told me this was based on a John Irving novel, I would have totally believed you because it reads just like one of his uh, kind of classic novels, The World According to Garp, A Prayer for Own Nini. A lot of these kind of I always think John Irving is like three times bigger in New England than he is anywhere else in in the world. Um, But he just always writes about this kind of world. So it very much was a a nostalgic hit for me uh, in those regards. So, yes biases noted but i will say i don't know that i i loved or hated this movie because of new england so much 
All right, that's fair. For me, it like it just added to the nostalgia because my family lives in a suburb outside of Boston. So I grew up there. I went to high school in a town near Wellesley. Um, and actually, like the high school that I went to, it was not at the time, but now I think is the number one high school in Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. so what that means in terms of my relationship to the content of this movie is so many people I knew or who lived around me went to a bunch of these types of schools like Deerfield Academy, which I think they filmed a lot of this movie at um, like people I went to like went to elementary school with like went off like by the time they went to middle school or high school went to Deerfield Academy. And my dad uh, owned a Thai restaurant in Tewksbury, which is north of Boston. And they are down the street from a school in Andover called Phillips Academy, which is I think their claim to fame is that George W. Bush went there. Maybe. But, and that's like a sister school to Phillips Exeter, right? Like, yeah, that's... I think so. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they're the same. So, so, yeah. So, like, a lot of kids in Blazers used to come to my dad's restaurant. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that when they, like, with a teacher. Like, it was very much like a holdover situation where, like, they were being at, like, like chaperoned to go to lunch. <laughs> my dad's and, were, restaurant. And, and there were counties there to give them dirty looks. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we didn't we didn't have a um the owner of the liquor store in on the strip mall we used to like love hanging out with him and chatting with my dad in the afternoon so yeah we had a, we had a little bit of that but yes. i think like for me like the sense of place in this movie is so strong and i guess maybe this is me start, starting my short take the the sense of place is so strong that like and i think i texted this to both of you what right after i saw it was that that I've lived, I haven't lived in Massachusetts for a very long time now. And, but it, so it actually does take quite a lot for me to be like homesick, quote unquote, because it's like, I don't really consider it my home anymore. It's where I'm from, but it's not my home, if that makes sense. And, but this movie definitely was like, oh, like I miss, it was like, it made me miss it in a really big way. And so I was not expecting that at all. Um, I really liked how this film wasn't particularly heavy handed, but was very powerful in its, portrayal of like elitism in education and sort of the like the social socioeconomic disparity that kind of comes up with a school like this and the sense of privilege and education and how education can impact someone's socioeconomic status or not um and 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 all that that sort of stuff so i think yeah there's a there was a lot um that kind of got drudged up by watching this movie <laughs> that i that i didn't anticipate um but that, that all that said, like I, I really, really enjoyed it, and I, I thought it was very funny. Uh, the writing is so sharp. I mean, like Paul Giamatti's character basically is like using a thesaurus every time he opens his mouth, and like, <laughs> um, and and I, the actually my favorite thing though, and this is where I'll stop, is that the way that it portrays people learning things about each other and getting to know each other felt very authentic to me because it wasn't like mm-hmm. characters don't have huge monologues where they're like well you didn't know that like then they tell their entire backstory it's like you get little snippets here and there throughout the movie um which i feel like is very reflective of real life and, and what what would happen if you're like stuck in a situation with somebody but then you get to know them better um so so i re- overall overall very positive it's not quite like my like best of the year for me right now and we could talk about later about why, because I've been sort of mulling over why, and I still don't really know. But so it doesn't quite reach the like high heights of other things I've seen this year, but it's it's definitely up there. Yeah, I I agree with a lot of what you uh, what you just said. I I thought that subtlety of the interactions between the characters and the way there's 
again, this, this would be, this would come up later. We can talk about maybe there was only one moment where I was like, oh, that person's over explaining what's happening right now. Like, and really just one moment in the whole movie. And it turns out there was a reason for that. Like mm-hmm. that was a, a narrative choice or, or to help us like realize what was uh, about to unfold. Um, and so I really appreciated that. Um, so my, uh, uh, to fold into my short take, I don't want to be the like audience cop uh, about this. <laughs> Um, but and, and the thing that it was a it was a particular kind of experience where it was a I think sold out like you know a relatively you know the, the big theater at the at the Alamo Draft House nearby um, and I had like the one person who like was making noise next to me but it was this like older middle aged woman who was just very responsive to everything that was happening. I think because before the end of the first act, she had had three cocktails uh, and it was a Sunday (laughs) afternoon uh, and she had three cocktails by the end of it. And so, Oh, (laughs) like just at every potential (laughs) moment when something would happen. So there was like this sort of like, I don't know how other people feel when stuff's happened, but there's like, Something when something like this happens, it's just sort of like you you can kind of just block it out for a little while. You don't like pay attention to it. Then like I start to realize, oh, this is a thing that's happening. Like this isn't like occasionally. This is every time, every scene, every moment that there could be a reaction. She has to do it verbally mm-hmm. and has to do it like where other people can hear it. And I don't I don't think this was malicious or it was mean. And it's the kind of thing you can't tell someone like please stop making noises. Like you're you're you know it's not inconsiderate. It's enjoying just, the movie. Right. Yeah. It's just, but like, it also is sort of like she's insisting upon herself in a way that's just sort of like, I don't know if you need to do that, but that's your life. Um, and so that, like, there was a moment about 20, 25 minutes in where I was like, I'm not going to be able to have a genuine reaction to anything in this movie because everything that happens is going to be filtered through me mm. hearing her react and I won't be able to actually enjoy it. And within like five minutes of thinking that I forgot I had thought that because I got so wrapped into what was happening. So that's my short take is it was good enough at pulling me into the characters and the world and the dynamic of it all that that lady didn't stop me from. Enjoying. She almost fell down going to the bathroom. I, I should She was like stumbling in the middle of the movie because uh, she had a I was going to say PT you know did you take away nothing from this movie you don't know what she's going through <laughs> uh, no you know what you're you're absolutely right uh, yeah I'll, I, I want it's very minor but I'll wait until we get to the spoiler section before I say anything in particular about the moment where I almost was like you need you need to stop like you just have to stop keep PT the movie theater curmudgeon everyone mm-hmm. <laughs> listen I'm just kidding. You're being, you're being very reasonable. The yeah. Yes. Um, but I am also a curmudgeon in the theater. <laughs> I'm nice. unreasonable at other times, but I'm, I'm being reasonable <laughs> now. Greg, what's your short take? Uh, so in the interest of full disclosure, I should say I accidentally went to the casting crew premiere of this film. <laughs> um, uh, it was, uh, I received an invitation from, uh, the group that puts together the independent film festival here in Boston. And it just said Monday night, there's a free screening of the holdovers at the Somerville theater, which is one of our lovely independent theaters here in the Boston area. And so I went there, I got there very early cause I thought it would be busy, I was probably maybe 10 back in a standby line that um, my friend who was with me eventually checked and said was probably about 200 deep. And he and I got the last two seats together 
in the theater at so a lot of people got kicked out uh, and disappointed and not welcomed into the screening because what it really was is that this film shot in Massachusetts almost entirely and it was uh, entirely crewed by Massachusetts hardworking film crews. And so I watched this movie sitting next to uh, the majority of the sound department. And it was wild uh, because I sat down next to a guy and he's like, oh, hey, uh, my name's Mike. Who are you? And, and we shook hands. And he's like, what made you come out tonight? I'm like, oh, you know, I'm interested in this movie for... Um, for, for award season. And, and, uh, and we just talked for like 10 minutes. He's like, cool. Enjoy the movie. And then when his name appeared, his friends started clapping and I was like, Oh no, like I'm talking to somebody who made this. And, and it had been promoted that Alexander Payne was going to do a Q and a after the film. And so, um, he had said in our opening conversations, like, Oh, oh, do you like his films? And I was like, yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't really know. I've missed a couple here and there. And he's like, well, he's a really nice guy. I'm like, well, that's a weird thing to say about the director you like. Yeah, right. We did then realize like he has opinions on him because they worked together uh, sincerely. So it was wild. And what ended up being very cool from a film nerd perspective is this film is artificially made to look like it's from the 70s. Um, and we saw the world premiere of the 35 millimeter print. Um, nowhere at any of the festival screenings, it had all been promo- uh, projected digitally. And he had, uh, Alexander Payne had just this afternoon reviewed the print in the the Somerville theater to be projected. And we were the first to see it in 35 millimeter, which is super cool. And he said, added to the film, I can't really judge that, but you know, it's because they kind of fake grain and lighting at some points, you kind of believe that, yeah, that's, it's cool that it's actually on film. So I present all that first as a humble brag. And second, just to say like, um, I'm pretty biased. It was awesome. And it's, it's, you know, uh, the three of us had the privilege of being at star Wars celebration for the Kenobi premiere and it was very similar where the credits rolled and people are clapping and cheering because they are literally there and their family members are there so in this case the the credits are rolling in the first you know five minutes of the movie and there's just wild cheering and applause as each person gets to see their name and it's like it put me in such a good mood for the movie it's like yeah I'm, I'm gonna love this no matter what and then you have by all regards a pretty great movie and a, a pretty well crafted movie as a part of that So my short take would be, I think this is a very good movie. I think this would easily fit in with a lot of people's Christmas rotations as like a kind of heartwarming movie. But I will say the first thing I said on the sidewalk afterwards was like, is this really a Best Picture nominee? Because I really liked it, but I would say it's an elevated Christmas movie. I would not write it off as just a kind of hallmarky Christmas movie, but it doesn't do a lot that's unexpected and it doesn't do much too much beyond the kind of standard Christmas movie genre. So while I appreciated it and I liked the performances and I would generally recommend it as a good movie, I'm not sure I'd put it in the great movie category. Um, And that's what I will say. Uh, You know, there's not a lot out right now, so I'm telling people go see it because it's a great time. But I don't know if I really think this this belongs in the 10. And, and maybe that'll be part of our discussion. Uh, so after now. you said all that on the sidewalk, what did the sound guy say in response? <laughs> he said, go away from me, you <laughs> asshole. Uh, I mean, you <laughs> jerk. Oh, uh, now I'm really getting the explicit tag. Uh, no, no, I, I said that safely when I was not without within earshot. Uh, the, so the other mention I wanted to make is the cast was not there 
but it seemed like they were hinting they might be there uh, because he said the when Alexander Payne took the stage, he said nobody's allowed here to promote it. Nobody is appearing. But the whole balcony at the Somerville Theater was off limits and they didn't let anybody up there, which is um, the part of the movie theater that's actually in the movie. So they made a big deal about you are watching a movie uh, in which people go to the movies and watch a movie in this same room. You're watching this movie, but they didn't let anybody from the public up there. So I, I'm curious if maybe some cast members snuck in to enjoy it. Some non-union extras were in my row. So there's a memorable scene. Uh, and this is not a spoiler. There's a memorable scene with a Santa Claus. I sat in the same row as the Santa Claus. Nice. Uh, and then uh, they disclosed there's a, a bartender who appears in the uh, bowling alley scene. And he also, that actor is also the priest in the chapel. He auditioned for both roles. He got the best take. And so they just put him in the movie twice, assuming nobody would notice, which I think is pretty awesome. So that's my behind the scenes takes. Both of those actors were there, but I, I believe they were non-union members. They're just extras. Uh, so they did not they did not promote. They did not talk to anything. They did not do anything to break the strike rules, but they were there. It's very New England that it could have been two brothers. One was a, a priest <laughs> and one was... Uh, one way a bowling alley uh, in Boston. Yeah, I was going to say, you've just described another movie that could easily <laughs> be taking place in Boston. Um, the only thing I'm disappointed in, Greg, is that you didn't plug our podcast to this, this mm. poor, unsuspecting sound person. Um, <laughs> Where you ask a question, but it's really just promoting. Be like, yeah. yes, Greg Cass of the Long Take Review podcast, <laughs> now available on all uh, your favorite podcasters. <laughs> Uh, I did not do that, so uh, apologies. We're not okay. we're not I'm... in the game yet. Uh, my only disappointment is I didn't actually get to see the Kenobi premiere. I was at Celebration on a different day. Oh, um, sorry. I'm just correcting. I'm just correcting the record um, and, <laughs> and cleaning the salt out of my wound. <laughs> that's okay. You were at there. In spirit. I, I was, and I didn't need to track down a Pringle can afterwards. So uh, <laughs> to, to commemorate, don't it. have it here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so I think we've actually already started. I want to pick up on Greg's comment about this as a Christmas movie and, and go into the recommendation algorithm in which we establish the audience of a film. It's my algorithm noise. Uh, <laughs> still not used to that. Um, so so Greg mentioned that, that, that this is sort of like a pretty, in terms of the plot and the type of movie, it is a pretty standard Christmas movie. First of all, I want our, all of our thoughts on that. But I think that the thing that surprised me the most actually was, and this is related to the recommendation algorithm, because I, like, I'm going to tell more people to see this, mm. which I wasn't expecting, right? I went to this, you know, like we all did, because it's an award season contender, right? It's got a lot of crit crit critical acclaim. And, and so I thought it, I assumed it would be sort of more art housey than it actually is. I think it has broader appeal and it has kind of like that, because not just because it takes place over the holidays because it's specifically about people who are kind of scrooges who then become less scroogey over time right um i should think is what greg was referring to um and i don't think that's a spoiler i think that's just you know we're gonna say christmas movie like that's that's a pretty standard thing so i don't know and and like people being a, a alone on the hall in the holidays and like you know people versus spending people spending time together there are lo like lots of the themes of the movie in addition it's not like a diehard situation where people are gonna be like is this a christmas movie like i, <laughs> I think you can make a pretty strong case that it is uh so yeah what do both of you think about that do, do you do you feel like you would just like tell everybody if who's looking for a, a holiday movie to watch this 
I mean, I, I don't know if I would necessarily say anyone who was looking for a holiday movie, but I think that it's I, there, there is a pretty big overlap of people who are like, yeah, I want a new a new tradition or I want a new movie in the rotation. And they might like a, a nostalgic throwback with a lot of sort of acerbic uh, characters and, and the way they sort of bounce off each other and interact. Uh, you know, I, I could see recommending it to a lot of people. I did kind of think uh, going in that uh, not necessarily that I would, it would only be something that people who care about the Oscars and awards would uh, would be interested and invested in it, but that it would be people from New England, people in academia or or in education in general, and would be like, yeah, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna like a movie like this because it's gonna you know have have memories for you. But yeah, I, I do think it has reach beyond that, and and I do think that it is more of found family, heartwarming connections um, in a way that. I guess I, you know, between what's in the trailers, the kind of characters that are in it, and some of Alexander Payne's history uh, of some of his movies uh, being a little more, maybe not mean-spirited, but I guess a little bit more, uh, a little darker over uh, uh, by the end of it, uh, that this one is uh, is a little overall brighter. And I think I think that there's more people that would, uh, that would like it. So um, I don't know if it's going to be in like, the the Christmas rotation for a ton of people, but I do think uh, it's it, it it could be a second or third like every few Christmases you you throw on the holdovers. Uh, I said elevated, um, and I would say that if I think of the so like last year there was the Lindsay Lohan like I don't remember what it was called, but she had amnesia and had to remember that Christmas brings joy, um, and like that kind of really broad Hallmark style. That was a Netflix movie, but uh, the, those I think part of people's joy of the Hallmark movie channel Christmas movie is you can just put it on and like whenever you tune in for five minutes while you're baking or wrapping or or walking by the television as you're cleaning you get enough you get like a little laugh or or something like that this is not that um it's certainly doing something bigger and something better um i'll pick up on what you both said like i i think this is a bit of a throwback i mean it feels like a 70s movie deliberately and i think it will speak to people older than us uh with some of their themes and so i can see my parents both loving this movie um not as academics in any kind but just because the characters are kind of engaging, like it's really fun to watch them and to just kind of see uh, their time as young people represented. Right. I, I would say, you know, if you were in your 20s in the 70s, I think a lot of this would be very familiar or younger. You know, if you were actually in high school um, and some of the kind of plot points fit with that and, and speak to a set of experiences none of us have. Uh, being just so young and attractive and, uh, you know, virile. So um, I I would say that would be my addition. But um, I, you know, I certainly think outside of that, um, anybody who uh, enjoys these performers, um, I don't uh, hate Giamatti. I don't love Giamatti, but it is a very good Giamatti role. The performance I was most interested in was uh, Divine Joy Randolph. And absolutely hit it out of the park and was probably my favorite. Um, I, I fell in love with her because she was the Jack Black role in the high fidelity reboot, which lasted only a season and got forgotten just as quickly. 
But I mean, that's a great part, but she just destroyed and it was, she was so good and so winning. Like whenever she pops up in some small role, I'm always like, yes, it's her again. Like I can't wait. And so to see her get uh, her teeth into this part is, is worth seeing. So if you don't know her, um, uh, then maybe that doesn't work for the recommendation algorithm, but she's worth showing up for and getting to know her. Cause I think this is the kind of part where she, you'll be like, I remember her from that. And she's going to get really good parts after this. She's also the detective on Only Murders in the Building for right. those who watch that show. So she's been around for all the seasons of that as the sort of beleaguered police representation having to deal with the main characters. Um, but yeah, is, is sort of a that, uh, you know, that girl, like that woman yeah. from like a bunch of things that you've seen a lot. And this is her getting, uh, if not center stage, many moments at center stage and just crushing it, like just doing an incredible job. I think I had only seen her in Dolomite is my name, the Eddie Murphy movie. Um, she was incredible in that. So that's what got hear. her this part. She uh, Alexander oh. Payne said he he saw that and was like, "That's who I want." So so there's a connection there. Amazing. That and the other thing I should mention on the Christmas movie front, I'm not saying I would never say this is a family Christmas movie. It is rated R. And there's, mm -hmm. you know, it's there's mature content, both in terms of like emotionally mature, but also just, you know, in terms of like things you don't want kids to see. So so that I just want to be clear about that before anyone went and was like, hey, everybody, let's, let's watch this movie called The Holdovers. And then it's like, oh, no. Um, so, so let's call that the love actually warning. <laughs> like, yes, it's a Christmas movie, but not for the whole family. This is the one you put on after the kids are in bed. 100 percent um but i think yeah i'm kind of going back and forth because i yeah i do i do think to get more people to see this movie i'm going to pitch it to them as a good movie to see over the holidays because it's like like greg was saying it's it's you know it's elevated it's sophisticated for a movie of this type uh but it still delivers on kind of the like you know the the snowy scenes and stuff like it has all the things that would sort of like be touchstones of the holiday season but the one thing I trip over is the tone. So I've, I have heard tons and tons of critics talk about this as like warm and comforting and cozy and like, like makes them feel good and stuff like that. But to me, this movie was incredibly sad. It's just critics low key revealing that other holidays as a child were terrible. I get, I don't know. So like, you know, what do we, what do we make of that? Do we feel like, and this might spoil our Oscars conversation, but I'm like, I, I want to put this on the the up, uplifting movie wins more Oscars now train. But then I'm like, but it's is it really? Is it really? Because <laughs> all these these characters have very tragic pasts. And it, that's a big part of the movie. Oh, you're treading so close to the edge of spoilers, counselor. Watch yourself. Uh, sorry, I didn't get to be on the anatomy of a fall, so I just want to get a, a little of the legal jargon in. Uh, so uh, um, I think you're right. Ah, there it is. <laughs> um, I think you're right. And I would say to get away from the Christmas movie note, I would say it then the other genre, the other uh, recommendation algorithm would be do you like dead poet society do you like uh school ties do you like a lot of that kind of 70s 80s um private school dramas 
I mean, I think most people be like would say like Dead Poet Society is a great movie, like inspiring, right? I carpe my diem all the time because of that movie. <laughs> Forgetting that there's a really tragic bit in the middle yeah. and a really tragic end to that movie. And I think this, uh, and not spoiling anything, I think this can have that same kind of uplifting feeling, even if it's ultimately like dealing with darker, more realistic, dramatic things. So um, I put that in, put it in that column. And I think a lot of people would still say like, yeah, I can be uplifted by that. Yeah. I almost wonder if some of the sort of warm, cozy feeling is the cinematic presentation of it and not necessarily the narrative, which Mm. I don't know how many people are just sort of like, they put in like fake cracks and pops, like a, like a (laughs) film print, like it, and it has the, like the focus features logo. looks like it's from 1972 (laughs) instead of the one that we've seen since the early nineties. Like, that's great. Uh, But you know, I, I don't know how much that carries for people, but I think that Greg's absolutely right. Dead Poet Society is what I had written down uh in uh for for future uh, a future touch point in the conversation his earlier john irving mentioned also strong uh a separate piece by john knowles is this a new england thing that that's one of the like <laughs> cornerstone like with catcher in the rye a cornerstone freshman year english book in high school but like that's like that's the kind of thing that sort of throwback like you know not really boys will be boys but like Boys in a in a coming of age in a prep school environment pushing against the environment, uh, and in this instance, like one particular student and a teacher and an employee, like this sort of from these disparate worlds coming together. But it's not like love triumphs over all necessarily, but it is like people who have trouble making connections, making connections, and there's something nice there. But yeah, I mm. don't think you know. I always sort of think of the like. Uh, and I, I can't think of a good phrase for it right now, but I, I promise I will. Of like like that that person that only goes to see a movie with like when it gets nominated for Oscars and then it's like, I don't see what the big deal is. This was weird, bad, sad, boring. Like <laughs> it's it's they they hear about it and then they go to see it and they're just like, Birdman, that movie was weird. Uh, and that's <laughs> it. Like that's that's the extent of their engagement with it. I think there's gonna be people who, if this gets some momentum, they'll just be like, This was a bummer. I didn't like that. Mm. Um, but if they approach it from, you know, instead it being like, this is, yeah, this is a, a movie that's meant to feel like a movie from the seventies. And they have any kind of understanding that that means it's not like has the sort of packaged narrative that maybe we're used to now, uh, then they might be able to have a really good time with it. Even if they weren't alive then, or, or that wasn't their youth. Um, Jen calls those people normies. Don't forget that's long well, canon. <laughs> I, I I feel like there's a there's a it's a subgroup of normies, and there's a person I'm thinking of who would do that that I don't want to name or or go through the history of how I know them. So uh, I'm just gonna try to come up with a better. You're gonna be cagey one. about it instead. I'm yeah, I'm gonna be cagey. I'll tell I'll tell you off mic. Another big movie reference for me watching this is Harold and Maude. Mm. Uh, because mostly because of the 70s thing but also just the coming of age in the 70s but with kind of like a sardonic humor and like uh and just like the needle drops like the soundtrack to this this movie which is great i kept being like maybe this is a spoiler but there was one once a song by a particular artist that i kept being like oh i wonder if they'll oh there it is like it was like like um 
and, and because of, it just really leans hard into the 70s vibes um in a good way i think in a in a, in a way that harkens back to a good things about 70s movies so jen you you saying that reminded me of something that i had forgotten because i was so wrapped up in the movie is um at the presentation uh, or whatever at the at the at the theater where i saw it um the end of the pre-show kind of mix of various uh various uh new year's eve 1970 uh footage and other things was a little like segment by alexander payne saying like here are five movies i recommend you watch that was sort it's sort of pairing it with uh this movie but also like inspiring it and and you know working on that and um the first two were older one was uh, uh one was from the 30s and one was like a western um but about like a, a group of women going west which like neither of them seem particularly relevant um to it uh or you know yeah i can't quite recall the titles of those but the the other three were all 70s movies and it was paper moon uh, the Last Detail and A Special Day, um, which are all, you know, sort of movies from the 70s that, you know, and, and Last Detail is Hal Ashby as well, along with Harold and Maude. So I think that sort of that like vibe of, well, this is funny, but is it really a comedy? And also there's like an innate sort of like hollowed out sadness at the center of these characters. But then the fact that they get to experience life is a good thing. So like it is, that's kind of, it's a weird kind of push pull that, you know, new Hollywood was letting people explore in a way that, I mean, gets explored now, but it isn't as maybe prominent in uh, the the hyped up movies now. No, great. I think, no, I think we, we did a thorough job. So hopefully folks go actually see this movie. I'm going to try to talk about it more with people in casual conversation just to be, because it's the holiday season. So I feel like that's an easy pitch to be like, you know what movies about Christmas? The whole numbers. <laughs> Um, this is like your family is all adults now and need to do something Thanksgiving night. Totally go see this movie. Um, you know, I feel like Knives Out and Glass Onion fit that category those years. And this is that perfect. Like everybody will have a good enough time. It, it'll appeal to everybody enough that you'll have a good time. Well, we are we have already dangerously courted spoiler mode a couple of times. So I think we're going to we're going to fully head into spoiler mode. If you have not seen the holdovers go see it as we've been saying you know if you need a movie to go see over thanksgiving when your whole group is able to see r-rated movies then this is a movie that we would recommend uh but if you uh, you know this is after i i hit the music it's on you So I usually like to start with like the most spoilery of spoilers because that feels like it it it's a good payoff for having gone into spoiler mode. Um, but what the what was what was interesting about this when I was trying to come up with it is that I feel like this is not a huge reveal or twist type type of movie. Some critics I've heard frame that as a negative, in the sense that like it never has that sort of like emotional peak. The closest thing I could come up with is that we learn that Angus's father is not in fact dead though that when he said that, that was in of itself or supposedly a reveal, but that he's actually in a, a mental health facility. So that was the closest thing I could come up with to like the biggest spoiler in this movie. But what, what do both of you think? Oh, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, in, in a way I appreciate that it isn't a movie that has a ton of spoilers and that the, you know, the, the big reveals 
are you know, less about like, and here's a fact you didn't know uh, going in and more of here's how this character reacts to uh, learning this and how they grow over the course of seeing them kind of process information and, and uh, you know, interact with, with, with someone else in the movie a, a few different times. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I like that, though it does make it, I don't want to say it's like, it's too subtle. It's too subtle for normies as Jen might say. Mm, um, but yeah. that it's, it's so that it, it is that sort of, it's not doing uh, sort of big, big, huge things that, which I think will stop it from getting uh, too much traction in terms of awards, in terms of maybe some of the accolades. Uh, but yeah, I like that. And w- the point I referenced earlier where I was like, that was a weird, like, over explanation of what's going on was the lead up to the twist uh, about the father because it's when uh, the um, uh, and now I can't remember his name Angus uh, when Angus is snuck out of apparently the Somerville theater uh, and and run and gotten into a cab and then um, Giamatti catches him and is just like what are you doing he's like I'm going to see my dad and he's like of course I'll go with you to a cemetery and it was just like why would you say a, like why would you say that after everything in the movie <laughs> was so like very well tuned of like how people actually talk and how much information is actually revealed in a given moment and then they pull up to I mean, a sanatorium I guess it would still be at the time uh, and uh, or you know some sort of uh, hospital uh, situation and we we meet the the father and that's uh, very crushing in its own way because of all the ways in which the sort of narrative had been presented by Angus and around Angus of what had happened so yeah I mean it was a twist it was a development but I think it was less like oh my god like M. Night Shyamalan and more of oh what a like an extra kind of note of melancholy and, and heartbreak around what this, you know, how and why this kid is, has been acting the way he has for the whole movie. And from what we've seen his recent history. I think it's very well timed too, because it's like they had just sort of bonded more or less before that. And so the assumption then is that they've shared all they need to share with each other. And then so to, to reveal, it's almost more of a reveal that Angus was still keeping things from Paul as opposed to like the surprise that his dad is not infected. Yeah. I will say it, it was striking to me looking at the movie after the fact, how few surprises there were yet in the moment, I didn't see any of them coming. Right. Um, So when I think about my favorite moments, um, what you just described, this kind of like, of course we can go to a cemetery cut to a sanatorium and it's like, Whoa, like, that's huge. And I didn't see that coming. Um, and yet it totally makes sense, right? That he dramatically said, my father's dead. He, he'd proven in many other scenes, he lies and, and is quite capable as a liar. Um, and that, and then the moments I think will, will stay with me. It's, you know, I think of um, divine joy Randolph's character um, folding the baby clothes from her son who was killed in Vietnam and putting them in the, the like bassinet and the bureau of her soon to be nephew. And like, it's a, a silent scene that's like, you know, could be melodramatic and manipulative, but it's just like gorgeously beautiful and incredibly sad. And, and the same with the reveal of the meeting between 
uh, Angus and his his father. And then the third one I'd put in that is the fact that at the end of the movie, the the big kind of final moment is that the Paul, Paul Giamatti character sacrifices his career, gives up his career to save uh, Angus Tully and to to give him a, a chance. And um, you know, there's this great final meeting of the two of them where you can tell they should hug and like say, I'm so proud of you and I can't wait. But that would have been so gross and so unrealistic because it's a teenage boy and his, you know, curmudgeonly professor who sounds smells like fish. And so they don't. And uh, they just like, like give each other a little guff and like all that's left unsaid. And so to me, those are the moments that are like, of course I should have seen this coming from a mile away, but it's so artfully done and it's so nicely presented that it, it felt earned and it felt beautiful in these ways that, you know, um, I hope people go in unspoiled and just kind of let it unfold uh, around them and, and, and kind of linger in those moments. I think that's, that's really the beauty of this film. The one I would add to that list of scenes is when Mary reaches over and holds Angus's hand when he's like waiting Mm. to hear if he's going to get kicked out of school or not. And like in any other movie that would have been a big deal where like Mary's character would have said like, you don't let them blah, blah, blah. like she, you know what I mean? Like, but instead it was just a silent, quiet scene and they didn't make a big deal out of it. And, and again, as you said, I think it, because of that, it because of how understated scenes like that are and because of everything that has happened up, up, up until that point, it feels very earned. That's yeah. That's another great example. The other one I wanted to add in addition to uh, to that one and all the ones that Greg had was we had sort of uh, been having this this plot developing of the I think it's like the headmaster's assistant or headmaster's secretary uh, who you know was paying a lot of attention to Paul. Paul Giamatti's character. And it was like, you know, oh, there's lots of chemistry. Uh, Angus is like, there's lots of chemistry there between the two of you. Uh, and then, you know, she invites them to a Christmas party and they're talking at the party, having a nice conversation. And then she's like, oh, hold on a second. And she has to go. And like her boyfriend has come in and she goes and kisses him. And like in a lot of movies, that would sort of be like, we have to process this or he has to try to win her over or that boyfriend's, you know, some sort of terrible person. Uh, he gets put in the full Baxter role, but instead it was just sort of like, okay, like that happened. Like you get to see the realization on Paul Giamatti's face. It's not like a setback for him necessarily. It's just sort of like, right. That was, that was, you know, a thing that, that happened. And that's just something that happens in life sometimes. And, and it's, it's not uh, the sort of, the movie doesn't skew off into suddenly being about that. It's just, uh, it's still about the sort of core three characters building their relationship together. I am quickly Googling the quote, but uh, that was the Banshees of Inisherin moment to me where you get Barry uh, Keoghan's uh, part. I think I'm saying that right. Where he finally like throws himself at the sister. And then uh, he's like, do you think you could ever love me? And she's like, no. No. And he just says, There goes that dream then. And it's like the most heartbreaking line I've heard in a movie like ever. But it is. You're exactly right. It's like we don't play it for big emotion. We don't do it. It's like, yep, that road's closed. 
right? And it, maybe it was never open, but there goes that dream then and, and <laughs> on to that, that lonely life. Alexander Payne told, told an anecdote in his Q&A about um, he showed this film to Walter Murch, who is a big 70s kind of producer guy. He was involved in the early stages of Lucasfilm for us Star Wars nerds. And um, uh, Walter Murch, uh, he was like all ready to impress him with like how it looks 70s and how they did the color timing and all that. And Walter Murch said the most 70s thing was the fact that you didn't end it with a hug because nobody in the seventies hugged and it was like done like perfect. Like it really is like of its time that that isn't, we're more expressive of our emotions now. And, and especially I think dudes are more physical and, and show that uh, love differently now. So I, I just thought that was another great part of that last moment. Um, and I totally take both of you adding those, those moments to the list. I think those are all great moments in this film. What makes me a little worried and we'll come to this later. Those aren't great Oscar reel moments, right? Mm -hmm. The subtlety and the beauty of putting your hand on his hand or, or reacting as the, the, there goes that dream then, um, those are hard to make into beautiful Oscar reels, especially if, say, one of these people had to be next to Emily Blunt screaming in a conference room. Yeah, I think the closest we come is probably the kitchen scene where mm. Mary is just like for like like she needs help. Like the like I think Angus goes yeah. to get right. He goes to get Paul and is like, you need to come and help. And she's just crying. And she said, like, that's the only time she actually yells mm -hmm. in the whole movie, I want to say. Right. Because people are trying to console her and she's like, just get away from me. Like, um, yeah. so I feel like that's the clip they probably would choose, though. That's not the clip I would choose. You know what I mean? Um, what clip would you choose, Jen? I would. I have one. I have one in mind. Okay. Well, but I want to hear yours. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I'm like, you. if you have it, just say it. Okay. Well, I know. I thought you had it too. I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to like put you on the spot. No, I just meant uh, like well, I would choose some of the other ones. I had to oh, have a oh, clip okay. my I, Mine is the scene right before that when she's listening. She sets up the Artie Shaw mm -hmm. record and puts it on and someone is like, yo, you're killing me with this music. And then she's like, shut up. Or like says something like, you know, <laughs> she says something funny. She's and like, then Don't you touch like, that record. <laughs> there's one like kind of shot that like, I don't think it, maybe it's like, like very slowly zooming in, but it's like a tight shot on her face. And there's just like 20 emotions that run through. Uh, and then the end, the end of the sort of sequence on her face is she says to the janitor who is just, he's just doing his best. He's just taking a shot. Uh, he's trying to pick her up all movie. I, I, I appreciate his dedication, um, but he's there and, and she just looks at the other and says like, I need another drink. Uh, and it was like, that's, you know, I don't know if that's showy enough to Greg's point, um, I don't know if that's flashy enough, but like that was the moment where I was like, this is absolutely incredible. We'll see what it means for uh, an Oscars watch. I don't want to give away too much, but like, I thought that was, that was, that was the moment. Yeah. It's so nuanced too. And her whole character is so nuanced, right? Because she's like, it's a really good depiction of grief because it's not consistent the entire time, right? She's not just sad the whole time, right? She goes, she it kind of comes and goes. It catches her by surprise in certain places. And then I feel like her performance is just so grounded because like sometimes she's really funny. Sometimes she's really wise, like, but other times she just like does not have it together. Uh, in a way that I thought was really refreshing because I feel like her character could have easily been only the sort of like let me talk some sense into everybody character right i feel mm -hmm. like that's in a lesser script that's what she would be 
Um, but you know, and and like when she is that, I think it's really effective because like <laughs> they're 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 rudely having a conversation about her in front of her when they're leaving the party, and she's <laughs> like, "Don't you feel sorry for me?" Right, mm. and so it's like little moments like that where, like her, like, like her personality comes out, and she it isn't all like, "Well, let me tell you how it is." Like, let me give you good advice, and then you'll leave, and then the movie's really about you. I'm just here. Like that's she's very much a part of the movie to me. Um, yeah, in a way that's very important. One of my uh, favorite old jokes at in uh, Community is Jeff Winger uh, turns to a black uh, cafeteria worker and she's like, why are you looking at me? And he's like, oh, sorry, pop culture has taught me that old black women just dispense wisdom and that's all they do. And and she's like, I'm not talking to you. Like, And, and it feels like you're right. That's the trope that they avoided as a stereotype. Um, so uh, as we build out the all the super talented people who made this, we have to shout out um, David Hemmingson. Uh, This is his first movie he ever wrote as screenwriter. And the story behind this is he wrote a pilot set in a private school and Alexander Payne had been mulling over this idea for the holdovers and um, was basically like, Oh, I liked your pilot. I don't want to make that. But I think from that, I can tell you might get this idea and you could help me get this idea off the ground. And, um, Hemmingson is the one who came up with Mary that added her. And this movie does not work without her. I I don't understand how you have stakes. The fact that Mary is there and it's what anchors those themes you mentioned, Jen, about uh, class and and education and just like this beautiful defense of of education in so many ways. Um, And the fact that like, they play Vietnam so subtly. So I, I, my friend who I walked out of the theater with, he made fun of me because I, I got home and it's Ben and I'm sure Ben's listening. Yes, Ben, you made fun of me. Uh, and Ben um, pointed out like we were walking. I'm like, I don't know. It's not that great. And then I got home and I, I did four and a half stars on Letterboxd. And he's like, <laughs> what is this? Like you, you're like... And so my defense of my my shift was I sat alone in the car on the drive home after dropping him off. And I thought that like the subtlety in which they play Vietnam, that Vietnam is in the background here. And you realize that's what uh, Paul Giamatti did. He saved him from dying in Vietnam. And they play that subtly through Mary's character. And that gives stakes to that final act that, you know, there's, it's a cliche to be like, Oh, the troubled kid's going to end up in military school. But then you're like, Oh no, but military school means something very different in 1970 than it does to us, you know, uh, elder millennial types who it's like, that's a vague threat, not an actual, you're going to die. And so, um, I just think it was a stroke of genius and it apparently came from the idea of like, well, if these guys are stuck at the school, who's cooking for them and just let's make that a real person. And, um, I just think it's a, a master stroke and, and really well acted. So, so shout out for those additions. I, I, yeah, I like, that's a good distinction that it did take me a while in the movie to be like, this isn't like Ted Theodore Logan's father being like, Oh, you're going to go to military school. Like that's going to be a bad couple of years, but it's like, no, you're going to be in the, you know, in a helicopter in, in Vietnam in, in a few months, if you, if you don't get your act straight. Um, So I, I agree with everything that you're, both of you are saying about sort of the, the structure of it. Something I'm curious about, and you know, I'm not the person to necessarily ask this question, but I will. Uh, is is there something to? I, I guess I'll, 
I'll, I'll, I'll, I'll build up the question a little bit more by one of the things I thought, Oh, this is interesting and subtle was the kind of, she's the, you know, she's staff. She, she cooks there. She's like, I got this job. So my, my son could get the education here. And there's a lot as a sort of like, yeah, like, and he was a real student here and we really liked him, which really feels a lot, but sort of like, we didn't think he was a real student. We thought he was like a person we had to let in, but like, luckily he was okay, which had both the class component, but also the race component. Cause I don't think there's another black student in the school. There's a few Asian students. We see, we have one that's with, as part of the holdovers for, um, you know, a little bit. Um, but uh, you know, they're they're very subtle about the racial component. And I remember thinking later in the movie, um, you know, we're, we're pretty far into the trip into Boston when they're in the restaurant and they want, like, she shows up and it's like, stand up, you oaf, like, a woman's here and they want Cherry's Jubilee. And the waitress is like, can't do that because you're underage. And I got to admit, you know, I was, maybe this is uh, me being too tuned in or overly sensitive. I was like, so we're in a restaurant in Boston in the 1970s and a, a black woman's come in with a, when there's no other black people there. Like, how is this waitress going to react to that? Like, what is her thing going to be? And it doesn't, isn't mentioned, like it doesn't, you know, she doesn't say anything. It doesn't come up. And I'm wondering if there will be people who will think that's a dodge. That's, you know, the, you know, David Hamilton did a great job. Alexander Payne, amazing job. Both white, a lot of white people. It's like, I wonder if like there was, uh, a a black writer had been a part of this if they would be like i don't know if this experience even <laughs> even if it's mostly she goes to roxbury and visits her sister um if when she meets up with the rest of them in boston that she is like i feel super comfortable and everything's going great here in early 70s boston um that's uh, you know i don't know and i don't know if that's something that like might be a knock on it because i think that my initial read was, oh, this is a subtle, like, who is welcome and who isn't, who's accepted. It's sort of just putting it out there in that same way as the holding hands, the those little, like, flourishes of character. But I wonder if there are people who will think it's dodging sort of a more uncomfortable mm. reality. And if that is a testament to we need things to be more obvious and more you know, shout it out all the time, um, which is therefore a bad thing. Or if it's that, you know, it's a kind of a blind spot for the filmmakers. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I feel like for that specific scene, you can sort of explain it away by her character. I don't know if I agree with this, but if if I were to try to explain it, I would say that because of she's worked at Barton for so long and she's used to telling off like snooty white people you know what I mean? like yeah. uh that that might give her a skewed like that would might give her i don't want to say unfounded confidence but you know what i mean like that she that she doesn't she's less likely to be sensitive to oh like i'm in a fancy restaurant in boston and like people might not want me here because of my skin color you know what i mean like i don't know but that i i don't know i don't know how well that holds up but i feel like for me at least the 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 really good scene that does establish the racism is when Kuntz is like, look the look that he gives her when Paul invites her to sit at the table. It's, to me, said everything. Yes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, because it's like they never, no, no one ever talks about it in that context. No one ever says like, yeah, that that kid's pretty racist, right? Like, <laughs> um, if anything, you could sort of explain it away as like a he's more skeptical of her from a class perspective like oh the help doesn't sit with us you know what I mean? but i feel like to me the look that he gives and just like how like wait like 
how like his world is crashing down because the, like a black woman is going to sit at their table. Um, to me, like without them discussing it explicitly said a lot in terms of establishing the context of like the dynamic between Mary and these kids. Right. Um, that a lot of them probably would be like, and he says some really terrible thing. Like, well, like she's getting paid to do a job. Yeah, just, mm-hmm. even like so, you know, she may she may be really sad, but she's still getting paid to do a job, so she has, right. she should do it well. Yeah, something like that. Um, and and it's noteworthy to what you say is that when that kid leaves, I mean, the majority of the kids leave. She does sit down with them, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, is that because that one kid didn't make her feel comfortable, or she just does feel comfortable with Angus and Paul? Uh, you know, I don't know, but yeah, that was like because she very quickly is just sort of like, I'm good, like no thanks mm-hmm. to the yeah. invitation, like very, yeah. yeah, well, okay, I'm not gonna do that. I'll be in the back, and then <laughs> later is like, yeah, I can hear everything he says. That guy's that kid's the worst. Um, so yeah, you know, you're right. I think again, I think there is a lot. It's there. It's very subtle. I am curious if there'll be people who will be like, this is sidestepping the right. the issue, but. It is in line with how they handle everything else in the movie. Um, when Jen started talking, I really wanted to interrupt and say, like, actually, as the white man, I'll take this one, Jen. Uh, but I lost my nerve, so I will just say the joke later instead of enacting the joke. Even with the bow tie, you didn't have the nerve? <laughs> oh, yeah, I should have. I forgot. Listeners will have no idea. Greg, dressed for this occasion, he's wearing. As I always do. I can't. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping you all bits. start stepping no, off uh, your visual bits. I don't uh, own a bow tie. Like, what was I supposed to? Oof, oof. Now I have. All right. I don't know. Christmas I don't present a bow tie. is picked out. So um, <laughs> Jen stole my thunder because I think this movie, I, I think it's a very good question about whether it's a dodge or not. And I think, again, like PT said, I'm the wrong person to, to judge that. Um, but I will say, I think the movie uh, makes itself about class and the reason to do that despite racism being a huge part of 70s in shockingly boston we pretend we're not racist but then every uh sports game ends up with a racial epithet thrown at an opposing team player somehow but no we're not a racist city at all um so uh yeah i think it's it could be read as a little bit of a dodge but the way you use class unites them more easily and you know God, is that the oldest lesson in America in the book, which is they divide us over race so that we ignore class, right? That we would pit these characters against each other uh, for that as we do. Um, the fact that the the janitor is also a black man and he gets a moment where, um, the, uh, where uh, um, Angus has puked on the floor, I guess because he landed hard and then puked it's a little unclear i I think Um, it was the pain from the dislocated shoulder okay so he puked on the floor and they just left the puke and um the janitor gets a great moment where like somebody puked in there and they like try to like be like oh that's strange like i can't imagine and he just drops the bucket at them which felt like a good comeuppance moment like yeah uh we're not playing those games we're on more equal footing now and you know, I, I this is no uh, this is no um you know aspersion on on places I've worked, but I think when I've worked at private campuses, there's often a divide between members of the staff who work as custodians or cooks or what have you, and the 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 kind of white collar staff in the offices of Res Life and financial aid. Never mind the faculty, and there there's that divide in these spaces that I think is 
often reinforces racial divisions, right? The people who speak Spanish on the campus I work at are the ones who are in those uh, those service roles uh, and the Spanish professors, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and so we see the, the kind of class and race dynamics still in these spaces that are still meant to be inclusive. And to that end, I will say I've worked at two very small universities and, and the last one I, I worked at, um, the the maintenance guy, got his daughter in and got her a full ride at our private, really expensive institution by working maintenance on campus. And there was this like celebration of the fact he could do that while also this little bit of condescending, like, well, gee whiz, isn't that good that he can get her in almost undercutting the fact that she deserved an education and was super smart and was like all these things, but it's like, Hey, we let her into our space. Let's congratulate ourselves for our charity for doing so. Right. And we didn't feel that way when a professor's kid came to campus, but the maintenance guy's daughter got that attitude. And so I, I think while, so, so I'm agreeing with PT that it's a cheat on dodging racism, but it's a good way to call academia out on the ways we think the fact that that education helps everybody excuses us from our own sins of classism and racism, but but classism, um, you know, very commonly. And to go back to your point about how Vietnam War is so subtly looming in the background, I feel like that aspect of it makes it intersectional because I feel like it they do such a good job of talking about, is it Curtis is her son's name? Do they I remember? Think that's uh, right? Yes. They talk about Curtis. Like he was such a promising student. Like he liked, even though it wasn't popular, he liked listening to Artie Shaw and like they, you know, there are little details that you kind of pick up about him that make it seem like he's living the American dream in some ways. Right. Because, because he was, he wouldn't normally have access to this kind of education, but look how much he's thriving in it. And then that gets, totally undercut by oh wait but he's poor and black and therefore he's ends up in vietnam right and like and and i feel like they do such a good job of like showing that even if he is granted access to education in sort of like what we would consider an equitable way like you know what i mean like in a in a win for equity right <laughs> educational equity but that 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 doesn't matter right because society outside of the educational institution is still doing its thing right and that he still ends up because because mary can't pay for him to go to college right then he ends up having to go to he ends up uh, um enlisting in the army right uh and so yeah so to me and again like there's no conversation that says that but i think to me it was so glaring like it 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 was very obvious that they were showing it. Right. Um, and like the editing is really good in the sense too, because the way they cut back to his photograph periodically, I feel like says a lot, even though no, the characters aren't explicitly saying like, well, you know, like, because like young black men are more likely to go to Vietnam. You know what I mean? Like no one's, no one's, mm. uh, you know, like editorializing about it, but they're just showing it. So I wanted to ask this big question about history. And since we're sort of talking about Vietnam, the Vietnam War, I think that's maybe a good, as good a time as any to segue into that. So to me, Paul Hunnam being a history teacher, granted it's ancient civilization, but the fact that he's a history teacher specifically, and that he has such reverence for ancient history, to me was didn't seem like an accident and seemed like it was trying to be part of the theme of the film. And so he has this one line to Angus. I think it's when... They're in the, is it the, the MFA? 
I think so, yeah. Right? The like, fact I was that like, you oh, didn't know convenient. that upsets me. But yes, well, it was yeah. the MFA. No, no, that's she what said I think she's about. been gone for a long time, Greg. She says think it's if, no longer think her home. if you home. looked out that window behind them, you would see our office building at Northeastern. But it's go true. on. Go on. I will leave my New England snobbishness out no, of this. No, I was asking that with a question, questioning inflection. <laughs> Not because I didn't recognize it as the MFA, but because I wasn't totally sure if it actually was the MFA. That was my, I was, I was looking for confirmation. Thanks. Um, <laughs> everybody. I, I will note, this has been a brutal uh, movie to not have the filming locations populated on IMDb. Cause I desperately wanted to know where everything was, where they, where they caught some of these bars, right. some of these sites around seventies, Boston. Like what yeah. did they, what did they do? Anyway, so in 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 the like ancient civilization section of of the MFA, uh, uh, Paul says history is not merely a study of the past; it's an explanation of the present. And so I wanted to kind of because I I like that idea as the that that line is sort of like in some ways the thesis of the movie. And obviously, there's like the dynamic between the characters kind of confronting their past, right? So they can move on in the present. So on a character level, I think that works, but also the fact that this movie is like a, such a glaringly loud throwback to the seventies, right? Cause we've talked a little bit about like the, it's not just sort of that it's set in the seventies and trying to reproduce what everything would have looked like in the seventies, but it's actually shot in the style of a movie from the seventies. So like, how does that fit in? Like, why why is Alexander Payne going to such lengths to recreate a 70s feel and aesthetic? I'm going to start with the uh, what I think is the more obvious point and, and dodge your actual question and make Greg answer it uh, <laughs> and and say that, you know, the, the most sort of um, immediate impact within the movie of that line and that concept is that each of these three characters has a history that we get like a sketch of in the beginning of the movie. And because they get to know each other, we peel back more and more of the layers to see sort of what happened, how things developed, et cetera, et cetera. And that like, that's informing who they are now. So, I mean, maybe that's obvious to say, it does lead me to say the one thing we didn't talk about in terms of, Oh, the like revelations that happened was that, um, Paul almost killed someone when he was at Harvard because he he had been the sort of uh, you know he, he was the sort of outcast kid that like you know didn't have friends um, you know it seems like he may have been like a scholarship kid like didn't didn't come from means or certainly he didn't have a relationship with his dad where his dad would lift him up out of something and his roommate did have that turned a you know roommate cheated turned an accusation on him uh someone was hit by a car uh it's all you know th these are the things that happen so you know that like these this is how they ended up in this position this is how they ended up where they are um and that that's the sort of localized um uh version of that big concept of we must look at mesopotamia greece uh, the Peloponnesian War, etc., in order to understand dynamics and and culture of today. In terms of what that means uh, of this being such a '70s aesthetic in the filmmaking, well, I'll let Greg handle that. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad I could tackle this. You know, in some ways, it reminds me of the cinematic masterpiece Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, that we have a modern uh, crowd of students uh, dismissing their old curmudgeonly professor and writing him off as a state. So uh, 
putting Indiana Jones aside partially, but never fully. Um, I, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> you, need, you, need, you need another drop. That's the bum, bum, bum. Yeah. Like just a little like. Uh, uh, that, was, that was me filing an objection. <laughs> for, for, <laughs> um excessive uh, reference to oh that. i mean i thought Greg was <laughs> gonna bring it up when he was talking about subtle uses of vietnam but that's yeah. okay <laughs> um well oh yeah and portraits of just lost uh fallen sons that really impact you uh yeah um you know, it's a really good question, and I do think you could run the risk of overextending the thesis uh, comment, as you said, about understanding the president in the past. But um, the fact that it's made in the 70s and all the comments, I, I've listened to a couple interviews, uh, both in person and on podcasts with Alexander Payne, and it's all kind of uh, hand wavy about this point, right? Um, I think we shouldn't ignore the fact that it lets you get rid of cell phones, which is becoming a more common tactic in putting it in kind of the near past is that cell phones short circuit all of your narrative choices. And so like if this were set in the present day, he'd sit in his room on social media, texting all his friends and wouldn't ever talk to the teacher. So that's both an excuse, but also like, could that possibly be part of the message that it has to be to go back to this time when we when real connection was possible? I think I could make a case for that, that that this kind of connections you're getting here don't happen today. And um, that's a shame in some ways. Um, but I I don't know that I'm ready to, to sign fully onto that view, because I also just think this does in being set when it is kind of offer a little bit of a corrective on the okay boomer narrative um and alexander payne is not old enough to need to defend his generation and the timing is not right for this to be boomers i guess it's you'd be like 25 right in 1970 if you were a boomer um an immediate mom and dad met after bj day and and had a good time um so uh i do think there's there's something here though about the fact that um this was a time when the stakes were a little more real and that we have to understand some of what that generation lived through in order to understand kind of how terrible they are today or when we say terrible things and dismiss a lot of that uh that worldview we forget this was there, right? The fact that we are all on the older edge of the millennials, and uh, I won't speak for you two, I guess. Um, I don't have a strong connection to Vietnam personally. Um, my dad served, he was a veteran. He will share some stories about that, but I don't personally feel stakes around the Vietnam War or some of these more modern wars. And yet this made me really feel that in a different way. And that's an advantage that then helps you recognize the current moment in our country by examining the past a little bit more. And, and you could make a kind of nationalist uh, argument there, not nationalist, but, you know, national story argument there as a part of that. But, you know, Jen, I know you asked the question because you already had the perfect answer in mind. So go ahead and fill us in on what your your answer was. <laughs> Uh, shocking. I didn't actually have an answer beforehand, but <laughs> what you were saying is making me think of the idea of this historical moment in terms of education and education as an institution and like boarding, boarding schools or prep schools like this one. And the thing I keep coming back to 
is in it's pretty early on in the movie i think it's the memorial service for curtis where they kind of um they there's a montage of shots of like memorials for other students who have died do you remember this in in various wars right like it's their mm-hmm. their other like war like like they've been um their war memorials in the school um and then there's also like throughout and i feel like it's like actually a lot more than i probably remember in the movie throughout they keep cutting to these portraits and obviously like they they functionally have to cut to um the, the headmaster that that paul keeps referring to that gave him a chance right um and that hired him even even though he was washed up by the scandal at harvard and stuff like that right and he was allowed to come back and, and get a job as a teacher and but I feel like there's so many other just like random shots of like old white men in portraits <laughs> that to me, it feels like that this movie has located a time and a place where it was like on the precipice of something, you know what I mean? Where it was like, it was like the, the, the beginning of the end for like a time when a school like this would have had only white boys and then maybe like one asian kid and one black kid you know what I mean? like mm. um so that's the thing i kind of think of because i you know i think that the fact that it's at a boarding school and an elite school and they definitely imply and this is what made me think of um of uh phillips academy and how it's claimed to fame is that it like senators and presidents and like it produces all of these like really important historical figures right um or important men uh that 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 must have something to do with the what the film is trying to talk about you know Mm. i mean like the that you wouldn't set it there without kind of engaging with this idea of entitlement and legacy and sort of the damage that does to our society as a whole this is a thing that paul's fighting against right he's failing these kids because he's like no i'm insisting on a meritocracy despite that this is politically a bad idea for me (laughs) And eventually will get me fired, right? Um, that he has the sense of like kids shouldn't be granted this privilege of education just because their parents are important and rich, right? Um, so I don't know. It's something I feel like it's something about that. Oh, I, I think that was a much better answer than than mine or PT's uh, shrugging off of the answers. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, but I I will say everything you just said there really makes me want to put this in conversation with election. Um, which is another Alexander Payne movie. And um, the, gosh, Chris Klein character from that, I think that's the actor's name, uh, who went on to do American Pie, or maybe did that before Election. I don't remember the order of those teen comedies. It, it was, it was uh, he was in Election first. I think American Pie might have come out first. Mm-hmm. But um, similar to Dominic Sessa, who plays Angus in this movie, Chris Klein was just a student at the school where they were filming. Oh, crazy. And Alexander Payne in both instances was like, why don't you audition? Like, you you have the right look. And then mm. they auditioned. And I mean, Chris Klein had a perfectly cromulent career um, you know, <laughs> doing, doing things. And hopefully Dominic Sessa will as well, because he's excellent. In the movie. Well, and, and he caught Reese Witherspoon on the way up and uh, Shalane Woodley. So Alexander Payne's doing pretty well, kind of finding these uh, these actors on their way up uh, or discovering him, I, I think is is how people are characterizing Dominic Sessa. Um, 
the shorthand on election is that Tom Parada, the novelist, wrote it as a kind of allegorical telling of the 1992 election, that the characters are essentially uh, George W. Bush, the the nerd, Bill Clinton, the like cool jock, everybody loves him guy. And then uh, the sister is Ross Perot, the like just chaos agent in the mix. And um, since then, election has been like everybody said election was secretly the 2016 election, right? Because it just felt so easy to paint them on there. But the Chris Klein character is that kind of entitled. His family is super rich and he's just like, gee whiz, aw shucks. And so when you say all you did about this movie, it does feel almost like Alexander Payne offering a corrective on his earlier because because I I, um, I think election is, uh, you know, a movie where there's no really good characters, but maybe the best one there is Chris Klein is the kind of like inoffensively naive more than he is evil in any regard, as opposed to some of the things other people do, although unspooled uh the podcast just convinced me that tracy flick is not at all evil and we're all just sexist and it's a pretty compelling case uh to to say that um because so, she's on a list of a lot of the greatest movie villain of all time uh lists and it's it's ridiculous so that's a very that, good episode of unspooled if that sounds like a big amy nicholson take i could <laughs> yeah. see her being like no i am reclaiming tracy flick yeah well uh, sorry i'll say my election take so i do think that that makes a lot of sense to me and it actually reminds me a lot of our Martin Scorsese uh, discussion two weeks ago that he glamorized a certain type of gangster. Let me show you the reality that these guys are just stupid and greedy and morally bankrupt. Hey, I accidentally glamorized the rich kids and that they're all gee whiz not doing any harm. What if they're the evil all along, right? The call was coming from inside the prep school. And I think that that is a very good take you offered, Jen, and it it just reinforces kind of what this project may be. And I, I feel like I really want to do this. Uh, and it, it's a total tangent. Jen, cut it if you feel we, we have to. I did look up while you mentioned it, Phillips Academy, uh, Andover. Um, actually, I'm sorry. This is just Phillips Academy, period. I believe this covers both. Uh, no, it is. This is just the Andover one. Uh, the notable alumni. Are you ready for the notable <laughs> alumni of Phillips Academy? Uh, President George H.W. Bush and President George W. Bush did both. Oh. Um, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, be pretty famous there. Um, Hosea Quincy, the third of the Quincy, um, you know, John Quincy Adams and, oh, uh, yeah. John Adams, uh, and Qu- of the Quincy market in Boston. Um, that's Hosea Quincy, the third, uh, Paul Giamatti on, <laughs> uh, yes, exactly. Um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs of Tarzan and John Carter, uh, author, author oh. fame, uh, Humphrey Bogart, Jack Lemon. Bill Belichick, and uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, rich kids uh, only doing good in the world, Lachlan Murdoch, uh, aka the real life Kendall Roy. <laughs> wow, that's wow. quite a motley crew. Mm. That really is. It really is. Someone, that's just someone right. Someone right the movie the where they have to come back to haunt us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they're they're the, the team up movie, the Avengers movie mm. of all these people. It's it's uh, it's tough. Or it'd probably be more like the Expendables. Uh, <laughs> I mean, God willing. Hmm. Wow, that's crazy. Um, yeah, and I guess for me to 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 maybe for just a brief moment loop back to what I said at the very very beginning about sort of like my my since you're bringing up Phillips Academy again, education when I was a kid was the most important thing to my dad. 
and making sure that my brother and I had access to good education and that we didn't have to work to pay for our education and that we only studied so that because because his whole mantra all throughout my childhood was like as long as you get into a good name brand school you will have a better life and so I feel like this movie really resonated with me on that level right because they actually also imply they don't say it explicitly but I feel like Angus is only going to the school because his mom his stepdad is someone who's super rich right mm. They kind of imply that, like, maybe if this hadn't this thing hadn't happened with his dad, he wouldn't be going to boarding school. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and also that he's been kicked out of a few schools. So they right. have the money to sort of pay, push, the, pay yeah. them in. Yeah. Pay yep. in when it's the, the, the kids got red flags. So, yeah. And they were going to go to St. Kitts. Like, he was going to be picked up yeah. and go to St. Kitts for winter break, which is not, you know, a, a, a cheap excursion. So. No. Not trying to bogart the hosting duties. Jen, I think you should take us into rhetorical situation because your third point on the outline really resonates with the discussion we're having. That's a good point. Okay. So we will now move into the rhetorical situation, a segment in which we look at a film through the lens of our academic experience. So in the teaching of writing, the rhetorical situation refers to any contextual factors that influence composing and interpretation. I guess the thing we were talking about is education. So Jen made some excellent points in our our narrative. Um, One is the value of education, which I think, you know, we're not going to pretend the three of us can in any way be objective and neutral on. We've devoted our lives to education and we want to help with it. And and I I think... um, But um, I do think that um, the value of education has changed so much over this time period, right? The gap between when this movie happened, or sorry, when this movie is set and the, the present day. And I think there's a lot of anxiety in our current moment about is a college education worth it? Is it worthwhile? And, you know, the way you just described uh, your dad's attitudes, I think is a very common attitude for the kind of post boomer generation. Um, I'm being sensitive to our elder PT who probably considers him a late Gen Xer, even though he's just on the other side of 1980 from us uh, elder millennials. Um but there was a pressure for education and education was just a given and and the way, like you said, to get ahead and all that, you know. Um, and now in the present day, we're having this anxiety about it that what is the value of education in a world where jobs are more prevalent, when AI is going to do all our jobs anyway or whatever, right, the current anxiety. And I do think the 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 burden of an education and its expenses are very real to us and to our students, to our generation and to our students. But it's also not the same as, oh, if you're not in college, you're going to go get shot in the jungle. Um, And so it's really at play in this movie and a very interesting kind of corollary on um, entitlement. And so let's let's not lose sight of the rhetorical situation. Let's fold both of those as character values that get folded into the value of ethos, right? So we've we've spoken about ethos before, that ethos is basing an argument in the character of the speaker, right? To make it clear that their background, their uh their their qualities entitle them to a position and you should believe or not believe a position based on the character of the speaker 
to some degree. And so that to me becomes really interesting when we think about how do we place education within uh, ethos? How do we place honor within ethos? And how do we then think about the ways in which are we accidentally just reinforcing entitlement by the kinds of ethos we value? So the, the thing I want to kind of jump on within that is how education has historically evolved, right? I guess I guess Paul has gotten to me, right? Like I keep going back to the sense of history. <laughs> I really just want to get an A, everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, if we think, and I'm thinking really, really broadly here, right? If we think about the way higher education in particular has evolved, uh, there, I feel like, and, you know, we, or I should just say me, me as like an English PhD, very biased in terms of like how I'm orienting myself in terms of history, right? So like, you know, in, in England, <laughs> education was primarily about character, right? And I think a lot of that is still, the legacy of that is still in this film, because Paul keeps referring to Barton men, right? Um, and sort of like how he wants to raise upstanding men and stuff like that. But if you think about the way education has evolved as higher education kind of democratized more, it became, it's be moved away from where we want to create young men of good character. Right. And became more about the actual academic learning. Right. Uh, like there, we don't offer classes about moral character. <laughs> As far as I know, <laughs> right? I guess I shouldn't say that with certainty, but <laughs> those are now um, called mandatory trainings. Right, they're not. They're they're HR modules that we now have to. Do. Yeah. Um. But uh. Um. So so I guess what I'm saying is that that this was still again nostalgic. Maybe it's nostalgic for hearkening back to a time when there's this idealized version of education as shaping our moral character. Um. But then if you actually think about the film, we've already mentioned this, like Angus is constantly lying. And there's this back and forth between him and Paul about like, you know, lying is, you just lied, lying is bad. But then there are situations in which lying is helpful and good, right? But it's also this weird and kind of dangerous sense of like, we're both in the same club and we're protecting each other. You know what I mean? Like they mm -hmm. have this sort of quid pro quo where like one lies for the other in a way that like strengthens their bond. And so like, it's a good thing for their character development. But then if you think about it in the context of like Barton men, I feel like it's a little slippery and kind of weird. Well, I mean, I, I think that what that is rooted in is that the concept of Barton men has always been a lie. Like mm -hmm. it's, or, or at least it's like, it's always just been about you're in a club and the club is here to protect you. And that's why, you know, he's in trouble. Uh, Paul's in trouble at this point in the movie, because the 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 student he had that he failed, who wasn't able to go to, I think, Cornell, uh, and the dad is a senator or has some position and is uh, like really mad at the school donors. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just like he's, you know, it's just sort of like you were supposed to. He's here in the club. We're helping him get to college to keep on to do the thing that he's supposed to do. Like you didn't look out, like you weren't looking out for your, uh, your, your fellow Barton man. Uh, and he's, he, Paul's the one who's clinging to this historical uh, concept of just like, no, no, we're here for, you know, integrity and honor and meritocracy. And, you know, he has to sort of hold on to that because he doesn't really have anything else because all the other, you know, again, he had that sort of shot of, 
I can get away from my uh, abusive dad. There's never any real talk about whether that was like, you know, he was a uh, high class moneyed person or what, but he gets to go to Barton. He gets into Harvard. There, the, in, the incidents and problems happen there partially because he's not in the club that his roommate was in. He has to sort of fall back to all I have is this small world. I never leave campus or I very rarely do. And so like this has to be important for him to make his life worthwhile. And so, you know, he has that, I'm looking back, I'm looking at at the history of everything, but his actual like present is just now. And so he has to think, I need to know all those things in the past to understand why all this is important now. And really what it comes down to is almost like the division between education, quote unquote, and learning. And he learns about the people around him, learns to build his own connections and his own club. And that's by somewhat rejecting his concept of what education is, which is the meritocracy, which is the Barton man, and which is the sort of you know, honesty, academic integrity and honesty above all. When, yeah, by the end, I mean, that's his big sacrifice is telling a big lie about what happened when going to see Angus's dad. Well, and, and that's exactly the point I was going to hit on is there is a weird uh, snake eating its own tail, which Loki has taught me to call an Ouroboros, uh, which uh, is that situation going on, that education. It, and to pick up on the start of what PT said is it's always been a lie. It is not a big jump from Barton men don't lie to hey, let's all defend Brett Kavanaugh in front of Congress because a lady made him cry, right? Like, I'm sorry, it's just not a big jump uh, that the privileged protect the privilege. And that's what I think a lot of us who are on the outside of these private boarding schools feel about them, right? That it's the way for the rich to make sure they're all in the club and protected. And so if the film is all about how that's a lie, then PT said it exactly right at the end of his comment. And, and that is that the most honorable act in the film is a lie. It is sacrificing yourself for your father, father, fellow man. And where do you build that connection? But in education and there's the snake eating itself, right? It's that the, the credential on your paper is what we pretend has value, but it doesn't actually have the value. The value is the connection and the community and the awareness of real life. And I think the Barton men don't actually learn about that side of the world. They don't form those connections with people who are different than them because they go to a school where they're all the same. Right. Uh, but then as uh, back to Jen's comment, as uh, higher education democratized, broadly speaking, over the 20th century, that's where it became a place where a Mary can meet, an Angus can meet, a Paul, and maybe those are all students in our modern classrooms. And there's the real power. That's why I still love my job is because that's the power of education. Not whatever I say up in the corner while they're all texting on their phone, but the fact they can hear each other share ideas and recognize perspectives that aren't their own and form their own subjectivity that's the beauty of of what we do. And I think it's what this film is saying is let's reject the way we have thought about education while still cherishing what that education can grant us. So Ouroboros, there you go. Wow. Well done. Um, the thing you made me think of is because I originally the question I had in the rhetorical situation is like, what about this? The film's depiction of education sort of resonates with our own experience in higher education. And I feel like you know, PT and I teach at USC. The really 
unforgiving nickname <laughs> or alternative uh, acronym is the University of Spoiled Children. Um, I don't know if Greg, I don't know if Greg knew that, I didn't, but I hadn't um, heard that, but now I'll use it whenever I'm talking to you two. As Amazing. You <laughs> <laughs> um, and I feel like since I've been working there, there's been a push and pull and kind of like a tension in terms of controlling the narrative of USC in terms of like, is it the university of spoiled children or is it more than that? Right. And cause I feel like the stereotype still exists and trust me, like I have seen, I'm not going to get into specifics, but I have seen, support for the stereotype (laughs) (laughs) for sure but at the same time for every student that sort of fits that stereotype there's another student who has like an incredible story about like where they came from and what it took for them to to get to usc and that it's been their dream their entire life and that like their their family like lived in a, a neighborhood in los angeles near usc and they like they grew up going to games but they never dreamed that they would possibly be able to go to a school like usc you know what i mean like and you know we have so many first generation students and uh students of color students of high financial need like that that really tell a different story tell the the story of sort of the the curtises and the anguses uh at the school and so for me that was really that that might be informing the my interpretation of the film to a certain mm. extent. I agree. I think that that makes that makes sense. And it's I will say we we jokingly referenced it earlier, but as you were talking about it, and as I we keep sort of we keep discussing these sort of prep schools in my mind, I really want to double feature this with Rushmore because uh, that <laughs> that is a, a another movie with a different take, but mm. a similar sort of like what is it like to be an outsider at a place like this. And you get the same Cat Stevens needle drop, which I think is the one Jen was referencing with yes, Harold and Maude. I, didn't want to, I mm-hmm. was like, is that right. a spoiler? <laughs> Cat Stevens is a spoiler? I don't know. It was yeah. in it was in the trailers. I feel oh, like really? the first yeah. the first like three or four, and this may be a uh, having the Alamo as a, a my local go to movie theater. I have seen the trailer for this movie a dozen times. So um, <laughs> uh, like there have been a few or a few moments where I was just sort of like, I wish I hadn't seen that trailer so many times because mm-hmm. like the first like four or five songs in the movie are all in the trailer. And I was like, yep, yeah, it's going to be baby blue. Like, that's right. Yep. I, I knew that. I knew that was what was coming next. And there were some moments like that um, when they're holding the hand that I was like, yeah, yeah, that was in the trailer. Like that's the scene from the trailer, um, which it still had the emotional resonance because of everything else. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. Cat Stevens My- all over the trailer. Everyone knows. I, I love that Cat Stevens song too. I was like, yes, like it, it is Max Fisher. I made that connection too. But my version of that PT is the trailer has um, a song in it that I don't know what the song is. And I only know the two lines that are in the trailer and I get it stuck in my head endlessly. It's like, no matter what you do. That's Baby Blue. That's the okay. song. I, yeah. It's also. It'll always be with you. And then I got nothing else. And I like, can't get out of my head. it's just those two lines. Girl. Whatever. Well, you know, you can go, right. you can look it up and listen to the full version now. Just Shazam and, it. And yeah, free, but yeah, he gave me the title soul. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bad. It's Badfinger, which was the, the band that Paul McCartney like uh, uh, mentored yeah. uh, to be an Apple Records, uh, Apple, the Beatles label, not the tech company. Nice. Um, so they, they have a lot of Beatles-y songs and that was one of their- uh, I, I did ones. look up, I when I saw this and I saw it a little on the early side before the wide release, I wanted a Spotify playlist immediately, if not a soundtrack release. And there wasn't yes. one, but I hope somebody has pulled together because it does have a lot of really great tracks on it. So there are a couple on there now. They're, they're, they're not very comprehensive, but they're there. Mm. 
Um, I th- the I actually hadn't seen the trailer until I think today when we were when I was prepping <laughs> for making the outline. I was like, oh, I should watch the trailer for this. It really took me back that it's well, one, I think it's cut in the style of trailers from the 70s, right? I assume. Mm. Yeah. Um, which is funny. But then also it is just cut way more like just a pure comedy. Yes. Because it's like yeah, z- yeah, and which is which I feel like is misrepresenting the film to a certain extent. But it's like and the 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 tagline with the very 70s voiceover makes it sound like it's like almost like a superhero movie where like and they're called the holdovers. Right? Like, <laughs> it's really funny. Um, but I think before we move into Oscars watch, I want to end on a high note because, you know, this movie, I was cracking up this whole movie. Not Paul Giamatti. Incredible. Like he's just comedic timing. Amazing. Uh, I wanted to hear if either of you had a favorite line. Uh, or just like a favorite, like Paul, like I don't know, favorite comedic moment from the film. Uh, I will take uh, a physical comedy moment. Um, kind of cut into the middle with no explanation is just a funny scene where Paul Giamatti picks up a football and throws it terribly, and it's brilliant. And it's like I, I was like, I swear that's just like they were out filming, and Paul Giamatti did this funny thing, and they're like, well, let's just throw in this little moment of B roll to spice up this this section because it doesn't really play in any way nobody sees him but it's like it's this kind of wonderful little character moment and it it uh just it made me really laugh that it was it was a good physical gag so i liked that the big splashy one from the trailer where the kid uh you know falls over the the uh pommel horse also made me laugh in the moment even though i'd seen it a bunch and then um i always like the the delivery of my line from the opening son of a bitch that's another detention <laughs> um just all really just like, made me the laugh. whole chase scene because mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> it's like it's so clear that he won't be able to catch up with him like it's yeah like, yeah he's, just, he's like already uh, winded before it starts um uh, greg i'm so glad that you chose the football scene as your moment because that i was gonna let it go that was the thing i was referring to with the woman who was annoying next to me because (laughs) uh, earlier in the movie for those of you who are hanging out in the spoiler section but didn't see it or don't remember all the details when there's the larger group of holdovers the um the really crappy probably racist kid um takes a glove from one of the young Mm. kids who had uh, snitched on him and then throws it away. And then, you know, the, the kid takes the other one off and throws that in the water in order to sort of be like, you know, you're not going to let me like be half, I'll be fully uncomfortable rather than half. Uncomfortable. Mm. So when uh, that scene's happening, when later, like 30, 40 minutes later in the movie, Paul G. is walking outside in the snow and he looks and sees something on the ground. The woman next to me very loudly goes, Oh, the glove. <laughs> Uh, and then and then he picks up a football and she immediately transitioned to just like, oh, as if that also had meaning and as if this was also a similarly moving moment for her. And then he threw the football and she cackled. And I also cackled because it was yeah. very funny. Um, well, it's, it's the football that belongs to the kid who go takes everybody away in the helicopter, right? I think so. He's like the okay. football star. They, he's he's the one always to right. cut his hair. Right? Yeah. 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 So okay. it, well, so it is like she, a... It is. I mean, I'm not defending what she did, but I was like, mm-hmm. it it is and a callback. It is a callback to the earlier scenes in the movie. Yes. Um, um, I, I will say, um, since uh, Greg uh, unintentionally took a uh, uh, something from my viewing experience, I will take uh, intentionally take something from his. I loved when uh, Paul Giamatti's at the bar in the bowling alley and is trying to. I'm gonna like 
just have a nice conversation with this guy dressed as Santa and the bartender <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm a man of the people now and I'm going to chit chat. And he launches into this like mini lecture that the two guys couldn't care less about. And I, I appreciated, again, the subtlety of the movie. They weren't like, get out of here, you. Like, yeah, brainiac. Like, who cares? <laughs> but like, I, I liked that. Uh, you know, they had like just a befuddled look on their face. That was very funny to me. Uh, I will also say in terms of lines, I heard a whole bunch from the trailer, but still worked for me um, was the exchange early when he hands back the, uh, the midterms, or I guess they're finals. They must be on a semester system. Uh, and the kid says, I don't understand. And he says, that's glaringly apparent. And he goes, but sir, I can't fail this class. So don't sell yourself short. I am. I'm absolutely confident that you can uh, what, like what exactly it was like that line is like, Killed it. Paul Giamatti nailing it. Loved it. That whole scene is just brilliant because he like, like the, there's a phrase, I'm, I didn't write it down, but there's a phrase he uses where he's like, and I know because I've had the displeasure of teaching you all semester and I see your, he uses like a, like glazed, glazed unknowing eyes. expressions yeah, or something yeah. like that. It's so, it just, the turn of phrase is perfect. My, you know, my favorite thing is just every time Paul Giamatti uses a different word for like slouch. Where he's like reprobate, mm. philistine, uh, vulgar, vulgarian. I think he says at one point, right? It's it's just so good. It's just like the the laundry list of insults, like um, esoteric insults, is great. Um, I'm gonna say my my personal version of the Santa scene is when I was a freshman in college, a wide eyed freshman, and it was like my our first time with a bunch of my friends going downtown to like walk around or we were going to a, a concert or something like that and a car pulls up and asks us for directions and my response it was in the phrasing it was like do you know where x is i don't remember what the, where they were trying to go um my response was not precisely no <laughs> and they were just looked at me like are you serious right now like not precise and they they made fun of me they were like not precisely and then they just drove away and they were like okay and then they just drove away and i was like uh and i was like oh and so like this film really captures i, can't, I know i keep harping on the same theme but this film really captures well for me the the sort of limbo that if you're a student who's not traditionally entitled and privileged going to a elite elite school and that you like there's certain things that you have to code switch and, and adopt behaviors and language that you have to adopt to try to fit in. And that like mm -hmm. how that doesn't translate to like the real world in any way. Um, and I feel like they capture that with all the characters. Right. And that's that's one of the things that Angus and Paul bond over, I think, is like that they can't they don't know how to talk to people. They don't know how to have a normal Paul, conversation. Paul does it with the Harvard classmate. Right. He he uh, goes up instead of down, right? To, yeah. to suddenly yep. uh, try to pretend he's on fellowships and so on. So absolutely agree. Uh, the bowling alley was, of course, the Wakefield bowling alley. And during the Q&A, a woman got up very angrily to explain how upset she was that the Wakefield bowling alley is at least a 20 minute drive from downtown Boston. And he presented it as if they just walked to that bowling alley. Um, and uh 
he could not have cared less. Uh, and uh, but apparently Wakefield, the crowd was very into it. Apparently, George Clooney also filmed at the Wakefield bowling alley. So this is now next time you all come back east, we can go to the go. bowling alley. All right. PT, have you ever been to that one? That's that's yeah. kind of your neck of it. Yeah. I mean, there, there used to be a bowl, a candlepin bowling alley in Melrose. Like when I was mm. growing up, we just bowling alleys aplenty. Mm. Um, so, yeah, in my hometown, we had our own. Wakefield is our rival town, our high school's uh, rival. Uh, we do refer to it as crazy town. There are a, a inordinate number of uh, high profile, strange things that happen there. I won't go through the list, um, but there is a very nice retro bowling alley. Uh, and I, I love that woman didn't understand that it's because Wakefield is stuck in 1971. That's why they can film <laughs> the there. The interior needed no set. Right. We didn't have to do anything. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have to do set decorations. They can't even use the one in Davis Square because they made that look too nice now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But All it right, is Candlepin. Mo- Shout out New England. Mm. There's my New England card. There you it go. Had to be Candlepin, it, and what, it, it was one of the Alamo Drafthouse pre-roll things. Was a, do- a little like '70s documentary about Candlepin bowling and the rise. <laughs> uh, uh, they called it. Well, no, they. I think they were calling it Duckpin, which I, I, I thought was slightly different. Like it was. It's more of a bulge. It's not really Candlepin, but was talking about small ball bowling. Nice. Uh, and yeah, uh, Jasmine, who lived in Boston for seven or eight years was like, I've never heard of this. And it's like, mm. it's the only kind of bowling we had. Like, yeah, actually, bowling was the, it was the opposite. Go. I didn't know bowling balls came bigger. Yep. Yeah, we I called it small bowling uh, yeah, because ball we were bowling. like, what is this? Like, we'll go big ball bowling now uh, <laughs> once we found one like that. And so, yeah, too funny. Um, okay. My last shout out, because I forgot, to, I meant to mention it earlier and I forgot the one of the few, few times I could remember an editing move making me laugh. Uh, but there's when, when Paul runs out of the building and is on the steps and he shouts Angus, like he's looking for him. It's Christmas morning, right? Like he's yeah, trying yeah, to find him. Cause Christmas he went morning. through all this trouble to get a tree and to get presents. And then he comes back and Angus is gone. <laughs> he runs out, <laughs> he screams Angus's name and the, the, the zooming out, crack like i just laughed so hard and and i I, in our google doc i asked like because i i was like is it a it's some kind of zoom i'm like it has a technical name i feel like i heard someone else use the phrase smash zoom but i wasn't totally sure and i think it's whip zoom i i I thought i added that in because it's very fast yeah yeah Yeah, it's called the whip zoom um but to me that was like on the one hand so very 70s but then also very like very funny it made me laugh a lot so so now we move on to Oscar's watch. Okay, so we all pretend right now that we just heard it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> Strong music. We'll do it live. So all the critics that I follow seem to think this is very firmly in the Oscar conversation. And so it's a matter of like how, how much it's not like whether or not it will get nominated, but how many nominations it will get. Do you, do you all agree with that? I think I, I know Greg sort of planted a flag already. I think that what he was saying is correct um, about it winning like picture or director. I feel like there's this sort of these big movies that are, there, you know, Oppenheimer, 
um, maybe, maybe not, no longer Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm not certain anymore, but sort of, you know, those sort of movies that are, are, we're hanging over is like, these are come, come and, come and challenge us. Uh, and there's been this sort of like, is it going to be poor things? Is it going to be American fiction? And the holdovers was one of those, like, could this be one that kind of rises up and is the smaller movie? Uh, and I don't, I think that it has all these things that we really like about it and that we, we've been talking about for two hours now. I don't know if it has quote unquote enough to say to be like, yes, this is the one we're going to crown. I think the, the three acting performances are close to locks for nominations. Mm. And I think that, I don't know about supporting. I think, I think supporting a uh, supporting actor, I think supporting actress and actor are, probably very likely and i think if either of those winning i would not be surprised about uh and i think the screenplay is uh, likely to get nominated beyond that is kind of a question mark of whether it gets momentum or not yes i think if if it gets momentum what it needs is a big like public love this and i suspect the christmas movie is coming out the week of uh, Halloween in a lot of locations <laughs> so that it oops lands on streaming like two weeks before Christmas and it could become what everybody's talking about um, uh, in that kind of everybody's home and we're we're watching it uh, mode but I kind of think that's a stretch I don't really see that happening um, I am not going to pretend uh, otherwise I just think divine joy Randolph is my choice for best actor, best supporting actress now. And I, I know we had blunt fever after Oppenheimer and uh, I, I still am, am, you know, dizzy with the after effects, but it just feels like this is the kind of part that should be rewarded. This is kind of how Amanda Dobbins has converted me from big picture is that like Emily Blunt winning for that part is so stupid compared to all the great work Emily Blunt has done elsewhere. So um, let's not reward the crying wife drinking while the baby is upset um, parts. Let's do something more real. And um, while there's melancholy to this part, I think it's just so well done and well acted um, that I I'm hoping she wins. I think, um, I think PT nailed it. I'm I'm not seeing Dominic Sessa getting a nomination. I think I think Paul Giamatti will, without really having a chance at dethroning uh, Killian Murphy. But we have to acknowledge that Giamatti is a star and a good member of the firmament of Hollywood. Um, so I see Divine having the best chance. Um, but supporting actress is getting crowded too. So I don't know. The Giamatti getting the nomination, I feel, is partly the nomination is locked in because they are tw- almost 20 years overdue for the sideways snub. Uh, and so this is the he's back with Alexander Payne. He's doing a great job. Let's make sure he gets that nomination. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I'm looking at my uh, uh, from our, our premature Oscar predictions, which is, uh, you know, a, a couple month and a half old now. Um, but I'm looking at my, at my document, which still had Lily Gladstone in supporting. Uh, I don't know if I don't think that divine joy Randolph is the favorite right now. Um, it's somewhat dependent on how the color purple turns out. Um, but like, I don't, I mean, at least I'll say at least my favorite, like of who I would want to win. And I'm not like, I think there's like, paths for other people but like this path makes a lot of sense especially if 
there is, and, and it hasn't always been this way, but if there is a sort of let's spread it around, let's give awards for different people uh, or different movies, I mean, that like that could be very clear. This is the Holdovers Award, along with maybe original screenplay with the story that Greg said of this is a longtime producer and TV writer who finally got to write a movie and it's this successful. And I don't know, I'm looking at original screenplay and there's a lot of you know, movies that we like, uh, Anatomy of a Fall, Past Lives. Um, and then there's, you know, there's Maestro, May, December, uh, Saltburn, maybe. Uh, and, and Barbie is the potential big one. Uh, but if they're not going to give Barbie the screenplay, I feel like this is in second place behind Barbie. And I think that like people may be overestimating how much they want to actually award things to Barbie as opposed to just nominating Barbie and I mean, above the line, at least. Do so you think it's the nomination is the award kind of thing? Kind of. And then there's going to be like, you know, maybe the, the Barbie will get a couple production designs and song and they'll be like, there you go. Th- you know, three, three Academy Awards for Barbie, but none of them are above the line. Right. I feel like, well, first of all, I feel like I've been writing off the color purple for a while because no one's seen it. And I'm like, it's a musical. People aren't that into musicals anymore. Uh, West Side Story didn't really do that well. So, so, <laughs> but I feel like that's really going to come back to bite me. So I, I agree that we have to kind of keep our eye on that movie because it is sort of like, I think the dark horse in the race right now because no one has seen it and, and it could really could go one way or the other. But right now for this movie, this feels like a cool kids screenplay nomination type movie. You know what I mean? That could mm-hmm. that would def- would definitely get nominated, and maybe that would be the, its only n- nomination. Though I do think Divine Joy Randolph, like I think, I feel pretty confident she'll get in. I also am like I don't know if she's in the lead necessarily. I don't think Dominic Sessa gets gets in unless the strike ends and we could start being like, look at this new discovery. Like if we can build a mm-hmm. narrative that's like tells the story of how he was discovered making this movie. And how he's like from the school that they filmed it at and all that kind of stuff. Then I think maybe there's a shot, but I think that's kind of where I'm at. And I feel like, yeah, if it gets, if this movie gets into best picture, I feel like that's going to, it's like, that's your reward. Like, that's what you get. Mm. I feel like the, the gesture could, getting nominated enough is supposed to be, is going to be the, the way of giving it an accolade. Yeah. I, I will say if poor things does end up getting bumped, uh, if, if, if poor things gets bumped, and the Oscars do not also bump like or extend kind of like, you know, post COVID uh, extend the eligibility window. Cause at least I had, and I, Jen, I forget if you did as well. Like I had two poor things. I had both Ruffalo and Defoe there. Yeah. If poor things isn't in the picture. I think Dominic Sessa is pretty likely. That I don't think, sense. I don't think that like, I think Dominic Sessa is more likely to get nominated. Even, you know, even if he can't tell the story as much, the stories is out there. Um, as opposed to like you know a, a second Oppenheimer person getting nominated, even though Matt I was Damon gonna say there's whoever, there's two there's other people. alternatives for the double nomination, right? There's there's Matt Damon, mm-hmm. right? And then there, but like I don't I don't actually believe that's a thing that would happen, but but you know some people do. And but then there's also the De Niro Jesse Plemons, right? Yeah, the, I feel like. Is there a lot of momentum for Jesse Plemons anymore? People no, are like, I'm not saying there Jesse is. I'm just, I'm just saying. Sure. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. If poor things creates a vacuum, who knows? Like, yeah, anything's possible. A lot more people than I thought are on the Alexander Payne and Best Director train, and I was like, I, he's not on my list right now. 
The but thing he does I'll... have a good track record at the Oscars. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Okay. Uh, is that he he has a track record, um, you know, and that also speaks to screenplay. He's gotten uh, you know, three, four of his movies have had screenplay nominations going back to uh, election. He's gotten director one, two, three times, Sideways, Descendants, and Nebraska. Um, but that said, like, he's only made one movie in the decade between Nebraska and now. It was downsizing. People did not like that movie. I did not see it because everyone said it wasn't good. It didn't look very good. Uh, And, you know, he's been kind of, I don't want to say he's been in the wilderness, but like, you know, it's easy to sort of think like Alexander Payne, you know, lock it in. But it's been a decade. The Academy's changed. Uh, He did have, there were some uh, uh, accusations levied towards him uh, in the last few years. Uh, So, you know, it's possible that there'll be people that are like, we're good, Alexander Payne. This is fine. Uh, so, yeah, I kind of think that that it's it's that sort of thing. Director, I also had some possibilities for below the line. If it got you know production design, costume design, um, maybe even makeup. I because I mean, I was really looking around. I'm like, Paul Giamatti doesn't really have a glass eye, right? He just has bulging eyes, and the glass eye is makeup, or you know, is some sort of a thing, right? Um, so you know, if it's like people love the holdovers, it could get some of those below the line nominations as the fifth movie in, but you know, I think it needs to really get a lot of momentum for pain to push through. And I don't know if that's going to happen with the the race, the way it is. Next best picture was saying that they noticed that the lazy eye switched throughout the movie. I saw Did either of you notice this. Okay. Yeah. I couldn't Um, tell if that was like the, makeup moved or if there were shots that were flipped i think it was the oh. shot they flipped shots yeah that was my guess that makes um, more sense i i don't want to lose this thread so uh alexander payne said he has had so long in the wilderness uh because downsizing was kind of bad he also was about to shoot like a global travel everywhere for five months <laughs> epic and it, the funding fell apart just before covid <sighs> but here's the funny one he almost directed a movie. I believe his key characterized it as I flirted with and he named a movie that was a hit movie last year. Anybody want to guess which hit movie last year he at one point was in talks to direct? Um, every movie I'm thinking of is it's so inherently tied to the director. Right, um, not an Oscar movie, be. but featuring oh, okay. many Oscar nominees such as Ray Fines, such as the menu, the menu. Unbelievable. I could not picture what the menu directed by Alexander Payne would have been. So um, that just blew my mind. And, you know, uh, can't can't possibly imagine it, which I guess would have filmed before this, although this did film two years ago. Like, I think it filmed in 2021. So so it's it's been delayed a couple times. So, yeah. I haven't seen any interviews with Dominic Sessa or like seen pictures of him, but I feel like that's long enough. <laughs> I feel like it's, it might be jarring when he, if he finally gets to promote the movie to be like, Whoa, you grew up since this movie was filmed. Like, Hello. <laughs> uh, he's off uh, at college by the director's account. And um, just to your point, boy would divine and Dominic be aided by a late night talk show run right yep. now right yeah. like if, if the movie would be helped by it they would 
rise up. You know, I, I think of um, when the first Captain America, no, the second Captain America came out, I saw Anthony Mackie like on the Tonight Show. I was just like, who is this guy? He's awesome. Like his energy is so big and so fun. And I, I feel like that's the kind of interview the two of the these two actors would be giving and just making people hype to go see this movie and see what they're up to. But um, but they are following their strike rules, which they should. I just want to remind everybody about CODA. Because I feel like this movie don't. <laughs> could have. Hear me out. This movie could have if it, it it could have a similar path, or like if it were to have a path to like best picture, that it would be a similar path to Coda. Because, and this is sort of what I alluded to at the very very beginning of the show, which is, was like years ago now. Uh, but <laughs> it it's a it's like a feel good holiday movie that has slightly broader appeal. I I like this movie a way better than Coda. I think Coda is a little bit schmaltzy and manipulative emotionally manipulative in a way that this movie is definitely not uh, and that's what i like about this movie but that said i feel like if enough sort of as greg is saying if this gets the holiday season streaming bump and then word of mouth and people start getting on the campaign if like the cast is able to get out there if certain things kind of click into place it could have kind of like because coda kind of like just got this late stage momentum Mm-hmm. and good press mm-hmm. and word of mouth and people were like yeah coda and then it won so crazier things have, ha- have happened is what i'm saying yeah i i looked through i i do hear what you're saying i i i was looking to see like is there a comparable movie like you know recently and i mean coda does make sense but the thing is like coda has that like and what about deaf people like what about this community that hasn't been represented and and we have actors who are you know, you know, breaking barriers, sort of, or at least you know, being being put in prominence that otherwise aren't there. Which it's like, wow, man, what what about white prep school kids in the seventies? Like, what? Who's going to represent them? Uh, you know, it doesn't have that like element. And so I was like, how far back do you have to go to sort of not have either? It's like, um, you know, some sort of uh, I don't want to say like issue or identity thing because that sounds so dismissive but some sort of a oh this is an interesting like new story or commentary on the world component or like who doesn't love putting on a show like <laughs> kind of like degree to it and you know i don't i mean shape of water maybe i mean there's sort of the put on a show there and then before that it's like are we all the way back to american beauty like mm. as like what like you know, the ennui of life and trying to deal with deal with the you know people around us and learning things, et cetera. So you know, it does feel like it's been a while. It would be an outlier. I do think that, you know, you go back to like, I mean, Ordinary People was much more dramatic, but like there are those movies in the 70s that were, you know, like here are just interpersonal dramas about things that could win Best Picture. Um, yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. I don't know if this movie is going to engender enough sort of heart warmth to get that kind of coda bump plus i don't know if the all the things that we've talked about are so subtle i don't know if people will be like and yes i'm rewarding this story about generational trauma and education and war and and class in society um you know when there are other movies that are doing that a lot more at a lot a bigger volume you're probably right so we'll (laughs) But I mean, look, I, I think I think I mean, I'll say it here. I think Divine Joy Randolph wins. I'm going to say that oh, we'll see wow. what happens. I think that wins. And I, I'm, I'm also saying right now, I think the holdovers is the most likely to win screenplay, original screenplay. 
could change. I don't know. It could shift around. I think it wins those two. And that's a, that. Boom. I'm done. Okay. There's the clip that I will play after the Oscars is over. Yes. When I'm wrong. <laughs> Congratulations, Emily Blunt and uh, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach for their uh, locked in wins after, uh, after I said that. <laughs> All right. So I think that's a good place to wrap up. Shaming PT. Always a good place to end. Um <laughs> You started by calling me a Nazi, for the record. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's true. You've been a good sport. Which uh, I will say, Jen, Jen, pre-clear, Jen did pre-clear that on a, on a text. That would, would it be okay with that quote? And I, uh, for better or for worse, was like, absolutely. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good quote. I was like, are we the type of podcast that makes Nazi jokes? Uh, I guess so. Uh, although although the movie, it's, it's we're quoting the movie. So it's not, we're not making that joke. We're making a joke about the movie making that joke. Um, and it's a good, it's a, it's a good bit. I, that line landed. I think. Um, and now whenever I'm on with PT, I can say still a Nazi and as <laughs> Indiana Jones. Yes. So it, it works out really well for me. It's true. <laughs> I really do need a soundboard thing for every time you mention Indiana Jones. This is going to have to happen. Um, all right. So PT, where can folks find us and follow us? Yeah. Uh, once again, uh, to, to bookend things, you can follow us on Instagram and on threads at the long take review. Uh, in addition to uh, uh, following us or subscribing to us on any of your podcast providers, make sure to like, make sure to uh, leave a little uh, comment, uh, especially on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, if you if you would, that would be lovely. Uh, and if you'd like to contact us outside of a social media environment, because those are frequently a nightmare, uh, well, you could email us, um, thelongtakereview at gmail.com. And Greg, where can folks find you and all the great work that you do? Uh, I'll be at the Wakefield Bolarama in 1971, <laughs> uh, aka this weekend. Uh, Dress for it. For, yeah, that's true. Uh, thanks for this discussion. Uh, I do think you know whenever we pick something apart, it raises it in my estimation. So it's it's always a good time. Uh, I am available online at assorted places. Uh, most of them you can look at Ion Cannon E Y E O N C A N O N or ioncanon.com for my Substack, which is not nearly as productive as Jen's Substack. Um, but uh, find me on Instagram, Threads, uh, and on Letterboxd, I'm uh, Obi-Wan Cass. And you can find me at Subchakchai, S-O-P-C-H-O-C-K-C-H-A-I, on Instagram and Threads, and Qui-Gon Jen on Letterboxd. And I do owe everybody a Loki review. It is coming. We'll have to see if this this episode comes out or if my Loki review comes out first. I really don't know which one. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I do like the parallel between both of you where it's like, here's my um, professional, respectable handle on all social media except for Letterboxd. Uh, edit Star Wars Nerd uh, 22. Um, please follow me. Please follow me there. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. I don't think we're reprobates. I think we're good. Yeah. But Philistine. <laughs>
transcribed by someone that's not um, out there. Yeah, I don't know if it's right though. That's that's the. Yeah, uh, he went through. They were at three different um, uh, private academy type places. Deerfield Academy was the one they mainly shot at. They also shot at the Fairhaven High School, which my mom lives in Fairhaven, um, and huh. that's a public high school, but it's beautiful. the The Delanos, as in Franklin Delano Roosevelt, built mm. a lot of the Fairhaven public buildings, and they're incredibly gorgeous uh, for where they are because the family had a ton of money. So. Um, that's that's what I remember. The MFA, the Orpheum. I don't know where the sanitarium was. It looked familiar, but I couldn't place it. And then um, I feel like the where they were shopping for books, I definitely recognize that as oh, being Oh, yep, that's on, the Brattle um, Bookshop uh, downtown. I, I've been there. It still looks pretty much like that, but they 70s upped the the across the street. It so. had the um, it had a sign. Like There was like off to the side. I was like, wait yep. a minute, is this... Is this the is this the coop? No, it's the Brattle Bookshop. There it is. It's over there. Yep. Um, on that in that outdoor area. I will just note. I don't know, Jen, if you're planning on keeping all this at the very end uh, for the people who want to listen. Uh, I did look up and find while people were were talking. The other two movies he said were Make Way for Tomorrow, which is a Leo McCary movie from 1937 that was the inspiration for Tokyo Story, and it's basically like old people having to move in with their, you know their children because they can't afford their house anymore. And it's, everyone's very sad, but it's like melancholy, some funny parts, but then everyone's sad. Uh, and then Westward, the women is the, is the Western that he was like, it's just brutal. And everyone, everyone uh, is in danger all the time. And half the people die. Uh, it's great. It's like, <laughs> you, you got it now. Nice. And his next movie is going to be a Western. He says, as long as funding comes together, uh, David Hemmingson and he, uh, worked on a an idea for a western and are doing like an all-out western as he said is the goal so it's pretty cool i'm, I'm into it yeah is paul giamatti in it i hope so not confirmed mm. <laughs> <laughs> it could be the doctor i did i be- did hear and now we're just throwing random miscellaneous information that we didn't mention in the main show now so i don't know what we're gonna do with this but the thing I've, i didn't mention was that richard lawson i think on little gold men was like people might just not know that alexander Dupain didn't write this movie yeah. Yes, and, and then it and then it might win because they just will assume that he and did the screenplay. He hinted heavily that it was very, very collaborative. Um, and so I, if he really thought it was up for the Oscar for best original screenplay, I feel like he would have grabbed a co credit on it. Mm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I I didn't feel certain enough saying that out loud, but. It's interesting that he was like, yeah, we it was very collaborative. He, he specifically said he deserves the credit and he got the credit, but it was a very collaborative process. So. Fair. And I mean, uh, the last time there was a screenplay nomination was Nebraska and that he didn't have his name on that. It was just mm. Bob Nelson. The the great Bob Nelson, um, who uh, who wrote uh, who wrote Nebraska and got nominated for it. So, oh. but yeah, I, I think do remember this- sort of hearing maybe Payne like, you know, kind of Matthew Weiner's his way into like this is mine too. Like yeah. I also get credit for this, right? <laughs> um, maybe he's grown out of that. That's this the is old the... family guy joke of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, right? Ben Affleck's on the couch. And it's like, hey, you'll put my name on that too, right? Like you said you're done. Like, please put my name on it. Sorry. Go ahead, Jen. I was I was just going to say this is the last time I keep the recording button on after I try to end the episode because 
at the very least, this is proof that we just talk like this normally. And not- it's true. I mean, look, if you want to keep it going, I've got a tight five about how crazy Wakefield is. Uh, and I'll, I'll start with the fact that there is a fully uh, a full league of adult baseball players. And you have to live or have been born in the town of Wakefield to play in it. And they have a fully stocked six-team league that continues to exist of people who play baseball all through the summer who are either – Graduates of Wakefield High School currently live in Wakefield. They're 18 to like 50 something. Wow. That's just a thing that apparently they do. That That's a Wakefield thing. Wow. I go there to McDonald's. That's all I do in Wakefield is when the kids want Happy Meals, I shoot out Main Street. You don't go, go to, to Webhead Comics? I don't is, know. I've heard of that. Matt Myra on Nerdist used to talk about that. And I keep going past the McDonald's and then uh, you got to turn left on uh, water. Actually, no, sorry. Right before the McDonald's, you turn left on water street and it, uh, there's Webhead comics is like a mile on the right. I don't know if it's there anymore. Are you sure? I uh, don't, but it was there as I go that like, way to go to the Jordan's IMAX. Right. Isn't that yes. what you just It's described? very small. It doesn't have a big sign. Okay. It's just a little yellow sign. It was there as of like four years ago, All right. but maybe I'll the pandemic knocked it out. But I, you know, I feel like I would have heard about that from my, my nerd friends. In the I want to know if your kids me. have the Grogu from the McDonald's toys right now. We haven't gone yet. We got, we overindulged on Pokemon cards. So we're slowing down our role a little on was Pokemon cards. The last thing, or was that two ago? I, that was, I don't know. That was two ago. Cause they did the Halloween buckets and there's a hundred Disney things. So your chances of getting Grogu are very small, right? Her, so we had this like lunch on the lawn thing at at her school and a bunch mm. of the parents brought McDonald's like we pulled together and brought the kids McDonald's. And so they're all opening them the toys at the same time. And her best friend got the Grogu. Uh. And she was like, she was like devastated. Oh, <laughs> like, right. no. like she didn't, she didn't dislike the one she got like a, I think she ended up with an Elsa though. That made a bit of trade. I don't know. Mm. She, it's not like she didn't want what she got, but she, when we had it the other day, before this event, she wanted the Grogu so badly. She was like, mm. she just wouldn't stop talking about it. And then her friend opens it up and was like, oh, I, I love this. I want to keep this. And she, I was just like, oh, no. Uh, uh. <laughs> so now I think we just have to buy McDonald's every day until we get this Grogu. Um, They're also always very cheap on eBay. Like, you'll maybe uh, have to pay five bucks. Like, that's a promo. Unless it's right? like where they like, there's one gold assumed, one in oh, the set. Then it'll be expensive. Then, then those are really expensive. But otherwise, it's like it's it's never worth it. So okay, all right. Well, uh, we're talking about McDonald's toys, so I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit. Greg, 